A.M. The Fire. Welcome back to I Am The Fire podcast. Today we have a special guest and someone who I'm looking forward to featuring regularly on the podcast. He's a man that is very well versed in a lot of topics and someone that I respect uh, and wears many hats. So Alex Sandalis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, my friend. I've been actually, it's funny we do this now because I wanted to get you on my podcast first <laughs> I know. and we're here now, but we'll make it work. I love it. Thank I know, you, man. I, I slipped in and stolen the thunder, but mate, I wanted to have you on because um, I see you from afar, uh, you know, social media. One of the beauties of it is that we can all communicate and we can all see what each other's up to. But um, firstly and foremost, I think your work ethic was something that I was always drawn to and inspired by. Uh, since then, you've gone on to do a lot of things, which we'll probably touch on, but uh, you're very well-researched in topics that not only you're interested in, but uh, you're surrounded by in your environment. So I thought it'd be cool to, whenever, really, we just touch base and talk about some interesting topics, whether they're on trend, whether they're something that we're implementing in our own life. And I know that I can talk to you with a base knowledge and you'll be able to back it up with some of the deeper research, science and studies that you dive into. So, uh, yeah, just excited to chat about all things. Look, I think... It is, if this is the field that I'm going to be working in, like the human body, human science, like I think it's critically important that we we look at it in a multifaceted way. Like I'm just obsessed and obsessively curious about understanding how to optimize this machine mm. for health, performance, and longevity. Like we got one body. Everybody's like, cr like learning about things that we've just created, like the stock market and like government and, and like real estate like that's great if you mm. do that that's fine but like if there's one machine to understand i think it's the machine that takes you from birth to death and so that's that's like it's what i'm dedicated towards i guess most of my energy is i love that i love the word you use human optimization you know it's funny i often feel awkward saying that but in put it this way in i will say australia that conversation in America or with friends over there, it's just a different mindset and mentality. When you say human optimization, it's like you're speaking another language. But for me, it's really holistic term for trying to be the best version of yourself. Absolutely. Like it, I didn't, America's very tuned in mm. to that realm. Um, I think, you know, Australia is following behind America in a lot of ways, but we kind of look, look to them in a lot of cultural ways to mimic it. But um, look, that's where I get a lot of my uh, education, understanding and inspiration influence from. So it makes sense why I kind of re reference that. Yeah, 100%. Bro, I wanted to talk to you in particular um, on this podcast and now where we end up going. I think we just said this off, ca off camera, where we end up going, who knows. But uh, the carnivore diet, uh, we'll go into my own journey with it to add some context. And then I know you'll be able to speak on different experiences. I don't want to turn this into... You know, I'll, I'll, I'll edit in a steak emoji above me and a little broccoli above you, but because <laughs> <laughs> I know you, you sit on all sides of the fence, so it's all good. But um, people are very interested in different diet styles. I think everyone wants to attach themselves to something, be a part of something, or everyone wants to align themselves with a purpose. For myself, a uh, little backstory, and I haven't really told you this, so this will be of interest to you to uh, be able to build out how this has worked uh, in my own experience. But 
Last year, we were in the bubble in Sunshine Coast, so we got moved up there because of COVID, so we can continue to play. Mate, I was just continuously getting injuries has always been a thing I've struggled with, but I was just keep getting niggles and like shitty injuries. And also we weren't playing because I was, you know, in and out of first grade and there wasn't no reserve grade competition at that time. So you were just sort of training. The one thing that pushed me over the edge was just back pain. It was just constant. I was so over it. And I started to consume some information about the carnivore diet, mainly from a guy called Dominic Rapson at Origin Nutrition. He's Bali-based. And the more information I consumed, and it's something I'd heard more and more and more, and I'm sure you'll be able to touch on, but was the inflammatory response from certain foods, and in particular, typical athlete diet, which is high carbohydrates, high sugars. Like, if I think about what I eat now to what I eat then, it's like night and day, it's crazy. I honestly believed that I would never be able to survive without carbs. Like, I ate that much, I just was like, there's no way. Like, I was just absolutely hell-bent, I couldn't believe it. So I was like, you know what, stuff it. I'm going to dive in. And when I go all in, I go all in. So I, I seeked his, uh, his help, gave him full understanding of where I'm at, what I'm doing. He'd worked with some athletes in the past, uh, a couple that come to mind like Sonny Bill Williams, Curtis Siren, and Quade Cooper. And um, he sent me this full diet protocol. The first two to four weeks was an adaptation um, program. So it was like high seafood. Um, it was fasting. It was uh, no carbs, um, so it was pretty aggressive. It was pretty hectic. I remember going to training feeling like I was going to pass out, but I couldn't say anything to anyone. Like I was going to training, and if I did, if I like sprinted, I was like, "Whoa!" Like dizzy. I was like, "Holy shit! What's going on?" Like I was rattled. Um, but to fast forward all that, and just just to bring it to an end, so we can discuss it. I ended up doing about four months straight. Uh, I had the butcher dropping off meat. I had the organic shop dropping off stuff. I had the seafood dropping off stuff. It was awesome. And, mate, I'll be honest, um, just in my own opinion, I had never felt better. And I wasn't – the carbs I was utilising was some raw milk because you can get that in Queensland, straight raw milk, Cleopatra's bath milk, and some honey. Uh, that was performance-based, so around some training stuff and some um, raw yoghurt as well before the game, I remember. But, um, yeah, generally, like, I just never felt better. My body felt good. My energy levels, like – literally, I lost six kilos, but I put that back on. Um, but that was my entry point into carnivore. So um, – yeah, just to give a bit of context. Now, have you tried? You've you've tried it and implemented it, haven't you? Nope. Haven't you? Nah, man. Oh, no. well, I'm mate. open. I'm open to it. Haven't you? I'm open to that. I'm open to you know a, a vegan or plant based only like experimentation. So was Absolutely. I at one point. Um, that I did not know. I didn't know you had a like like really frustrating back pain. What else? Mm. Like obviously there was some inf systemic inflammation going on. It sounds like. Uh, yeah. What else? Did you have any like neurological memory problems, gastrointestinal problems, um, brain fog, energy uh, production problems? Yeah, I guess there was all, there was a little bit of all of that, um, to be honest. And I was just, I don't know, you never, you just don't really think about it too much. Like when you're in that environment, it's, it's high performance. So you're really just focusing on like the max output when you have to. You really don't give too much thought or care around that. But, Maybe you can explain to it a little, in, like in depth, a little bit more. When we talk about inflammatory food, inflammatory responses, everyone understands it, like on a base level, everyone hears it. But how real is it, and what what is the major contributing factor in well, for someone like me or anyone else? 
I think it, like that, even that word inflammation, I want to pull up some, some notes right now, but because there's different categories of inflammation that we define on like a physiological level. But I mm. think even that term, like inflammation, like it's, it's a broad? bit of a, like, what, what is it? Like, yeah. like, what does it mean to you? Like, what, how could you define it? Yeah, well, let's, it's exactly, it's hard. I mean, on a base level, I, I know what inflammation is, but I, I usually attribute that to injuries, you know what I mean? So I, I kind of understand the thought process behind it, but again, it's like, is it tangible? Is it something you can see? Is it, you know, so when it's not, it's hard to acknowledge and understand. So like technically, yeah, it's something we can see. It's, it's things we can see in certain biochemistry biomarkers, like, you're going to see it. Uh, one marker of systemic inflammation is called CRP, C-reactive protein. So if you ask your doctor uh, to, you want to see like, okay, what's the total global inflammation going on in my body? That's a good one to test. Okay. So you ask your doc, I want to get my CRP tested. You definitely want it under one. If, wow. if anything's over one, like that's an indication that, all right, there's something going on. There's other markers like IL, like IL-6 and... Uh, other markers that they test in like research studies that they we can more specifically see now different levels of inflammation or more of a more in-depth kind of way. But we have different things that can contribute to inflammation. You have oxidative stress, mm -hmm. uh, which is just by breathing. Like there's cellular, cellular senescence when cells will just stop dividing and you get this deterioration as you age, you get cellular senescence, you have DNA damage, you have uh, glyca glycation. Um, what else? Like you have all these things like our telomeres. Have you heard of the telomeres? No. Telomeres at the end of our DNA, we have these like shoe cap. Think of like a shoelace. You have this uh, at the end of your chromosome, you have telomeres. Uh, these shorten as you age telomeres are repeated DNA sequences at the end of chromosomes. So as you age, they get shorter and shorter, like a shoelace starts to fray. Right. And what we see is that in people who have the, the, the most disease ridden, they're riddled with the most inflammation, their telomeres are quite short. And so a lot of these longevity guys and girls are like, okay, how can we, improve the functioning of this biological system, make us live longer and function better by sh uh, slowing down the progress of this telomere shortening, which is like an indication of inflammation and uh, longevity, okay? It's a kind of a layman's way to explain it. It's mm -hmm. quite complex type of business. And so these are markers that we can then refer to disease and cancer. So by so inflammation is like a like a term commonly used in society. You can have inflammation when you get an acute injury where you'll get, you know, you, the joint will become restricted. You yep. you're very a lot of people are familiar with that and then you can get inflammation, you know, systemically through the body at certain organs. The gut, the gastrointestinal uh, tract can become quite inflamed and damaged. And so I think I don't know, I I kind of want to give some tangible links to what inflammation contributes to inflammation. And mm. those are the a number of the things that I just mentioned, but those are deep rabbit holes in of, in of it themselves. And so 
you, Shandor, you, all right, you and like many others, including myself at times, can walk around and live in a state of, you know, this chronic inflammation, whether it's through your whole body or your brain particularly, or, uh, or just at certain sites in your body. So the real question we have to ask is why? Why is this happening? Why did you feel the need to you experiment a new diet? Awesome. <laughs> but why did we get there? What is the, the root cause of the back pain? What's the root cause of the gastrointestinal issues? What's the root cause of the autoimmune issues? That is the question I think we should be asking because those questions, it's, those questions enable us to figure out what's going on from a deeper layer and uh, to see why we're being pushed into such extreme diet models. So, so do you, of those things that you mentioned, how willing are you to attribute those to nutrition and your dietary intake? Uh, lifestyle, nutrition, stress, sleep, mm. physical activity. Like those, those are, the, those are your big heavy hitters. Um, nutrition is going to be a big part of it, but we can't pretend like it's the only part. So <sighs> now within that nutrition, yeah. What are some of the common things? Let's talk about let's talk about an athlete and general population. Yeah. What are the most common things that are contributing to inflammation? Is carbohydrates one of them? Or is that too blanket? Like the real answer is it depends. Okay. The real and that's not a good answer, like from surface <laughs> level. But the real answer is it's going to depend on the state in the context of one's individual health and their environment. So. Okay. Well, let's start with, let's start with the athlete then. Let's start with an athlete who we can't, okay, let's look, let's look at your factors. <clears throat> we'd like to think that they, and now this, this is, you, you can't just cover every scale. So we'll think that the athlete is doing pretty well with sleep. Okay. So pretty well, because that's definitely not true for everyone. I can tell you that, but let's say he gets seven to nine hours sleep. Let's say he's got his sleep pretty well on track. Now, let's go to his physical activity. High demand, high stress. You're also in a stressful environment in terms of performance. We can't pretend that it's just because their sole job and career and purpose is being an athlete that it's not high stress because it does. It comes with its own demands and pressures. So we've got high stress environment and we've got high training load. So we know that's going to contribute. To try and combat that, I feel like one of your go-to things is going to be nutrition. Now, what do we know about the typical athlete diet? Two things. One, it's heavily carbohydrate dominant. And that goes back to the poor methods and science within athlete circles. Again, not throwing a blanket over everyone or every dietitian or every um, athlete and club, but generally. The other thing is, mate, I'll be honest – when you train that hard, like most of the times, to the shock factor of everyone that's listening, athletes are eating whatever the fuck they want because it's just like, man, I've just trained my ass off. I just, I can feel like I. And to be honest, there's never going to be calorie surpluses really. If you know, I, of course, there's different ends of the spectrum, but do you know what I mean? So, if we if we now land on diet, what's and you and you're tying it to inflammation? What are the big factors? The big factors is that carbohydrate dominant diet style. A it factor? can be. 
can it be. can be it definitely can be okay because it it's not like what is like what are carbohydrates like if you just look at like what are carbohydrates well there's different types of carbohydrates you have like they're yeah they're, why don't you go into why don't you go into that okay so you have monosaccharides disaccharides uh polysaccharides like you have different combinations of glucose or sugar molecules all connected together okay mono meaning one di meaning two poly meaning like many or three or more technically do they okay? go in does that then in turn turn into simple and and complex yes exactly <clears throat> exactly so that's where that term comes from complex right. being the long chain of sugar molecules uh polysaccharides which are found often in plants or starchy carbohydrates take longer to digest generally don't get as high as a, a, a glucose blood glucose response and insulin response so when we talk about inflammation this kind of nebuli, ne, uh, nebulous term uh it's i think we should define the endpoints a little clearer so what do we care about well we know sugar carbohydrates are quite effective at stimulating your blood glucose and stimulating different metabolic pathways like the IGF-1 pathway, which is a very anabolic pathway, okay? And if it helps facilitate muscle growth and cellular growth. So it's very beneficial. Mm. But for people like the common athlete or individual who is constantly spiking blood glucose every single meal through a wide variety of high and moderate glycemic uh, stimulating foods, this can be a problem for endpoints of disease, pancreatic function, like you can start to develop insulin resistance, but even that's tied into uh, being overweight and being too long in a caloric surplus. So it's not just the carbohydrates themselves. They're just kind of a mechanism to which we create a poor state of health in our body. So from like a base level, I think we should understand the basic chemistry of what a carbohydrate is like these, these saccharide molecules connected together, you know, glucose, fructose, galactose, um, connected all together. And it's like, they get broken down uh, into their single components as they, we, they, they get digested, but I don't want to get too far into that. So it's like carbohydrates in themselves can be a problem particularly in the context of other unhealthy lifestyle factors. It's a, it's a big wheel. It's a complex wheel. And I don't think it's useful to cast one macronutrient as like <clears throat> evil or particularly like the, the be all and end all. I think context matters and for some people carbohydrates are going to be a serious problem like they're taking it like some people are going to like i think is the question like why do some people feel so much better right like not eating carbohydrates yeah like what's going on there like <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a question i can i can answer yeah why so actually for your listeners who want to know more, I just, I'm actually putting out, scheduling a bunch of posts on this, like now on Strength of Sard, if Amazing. you want to see more. Yeah, hey, mate, but, shout out City, let's go. <laughs> Strength of no, Sard. That's right. Shout 100%. out City if you want to know more, it's there. Beautiful. Okay, so 
why could it, like, why do so many people feel better on mm-hmm. like a carnivore diet? Well, why did you like, that's interesting. Okay. Well, what are we eliminating? Like, tell me what you did. You actually, yeah, let's, let's use you. Okay. Tell me exactly what you eliminated. <clears throat> okay. Well, if you look at it, let's, let's, I'll just quickly run through a normal, what a, what a normal day was normal day breakfast, sourdough, avocado, oh. eggs, Maybe, maybe, maybe orange juice, but probably not. But that was, that was basically it. That was pretty much breakfast, really, stock standard. Um, did I have anything else? No, not really. Um, lunch would have been, could have been anything like loaded stir fries. So big rice, big chicken, veggies, sandwiches, stuff like that. That was typical. And then dinner would generally be meat, veg, and starchy carbohydrates, sweet potatoes, pa- potatoes, whatever. Mm-hmm. In between that, I probably would have had protein shakes. Now, if I was to make it myself, I'd probably go more down the smoothie route um, and have a whole heap of things, you know, peanut butters, protein, uh, milk or coconut water, whatever. Um, if, I'm at, if I'm at footy, I'm probably having water and like a Musashi mass game protein, which isn't ideal. Um, so that, that's, that's the typical diet when I went carnivore bar the adaptation phase. Now I'm Mm. going like more of a, so basically a keto breakfast style. So eggs, bacon, cheese, um, you know, cooked in ghee or grass fed butter. Then lunch, generally lunch, I would just do two. So 500 grams of steak, scotch fillet or eye fillet, um, cooked in grass fed butter. And then dinner would generally be something slow cooked, so like loaded, like going going towards a kilo of brisket, or um, I'd have a big tomahawk steak, or um, something like that. I'd also filter in seafood into that, so there'd be oysters in the mix. There'd be, awesome. um, yeah, mainly mainly oysters. There'd be some some other seafood in and around that, but that's that's like a general ish. Um, diet plan. I didn't. I don't. I don't snack because I don't really need to. And then also, once I went sort of deeper into the performance phase of the diet, I was having some of the um, raw milk after weights, and then some honey as well. Cool. So it's quite a flip. And yeah, hell of a flip. That's fine. And I'm someone like, who doesn't have any skin conditions, autoimmune conditions. I don't really think. I don't know how how significant any of my gut issues or anything like that were. So it's hard to um, relate relate reference that. I think an important question is that like that we know of, right? Because yes. like so many things can be insidious and happening in the background that we don't know of. Not everything presents yeah, on so the outer not, layer. Nothing, yeah, exactly. Nothing external surface level. But, you know, without getting into details, you know, the Australia and worldwide, Western world is like, it is so common to have like IBS, IBD, like irritable bowel disordered uh, symptoms. And that's just a classification of gastrointestinal symptoms, diarrhea, constipation, flatulence, gassiness, quite common, particularly among even athletes who have to eat a lot of food, right? All right. What about how you stool, how, how much it changes? <laughs> My, Wait, I was someone I'm, who's like, you know, who went to the, I don't know what we call it. What's the, what's the nice way to say it? Who did number twos? Uh, bowel movements. <laughs> bowel movements. That's the one. <laughs> so my bowel movements were like all over the place. They could be just hit anything and everything. It's, it was just like luck of the draw. Now it's just like I don't know. It's probably it's only ever. It's not. I don't know if it's every day. It might be every day. It's it's definitely not more than. It's so it's every second day max, and it's just like 
uh, like a harder consistency. You you don't even you, you don't even need to wipe. Like it's the best, but it's quality. <laughs> yeah, that's you, good. That's that, a great sign. Yeah, so that's that's consistent. Um, one other the one thing I do struggle with a little bit on the carnivore diet, and I'm not the best at it. I'm not the best at staying hydrated, but it's very easily to notice like your um, urine urine can get yellow and like stinky real quick so that's something you need to combat i, I have electrolytes every day now but um that's something you gotta you gotta stay on top of i don't know what that's attributed to but then that draws back into the conversation around your fiber myth and all this sort of other stuff so it's like there's a there's a there's a lot going on i also eat organ meats the way i eat organ meats is um i can't eat them by himself i can eat heart like that's all right but yeah. the guys that um the god the the guys in sunny coast were like the the goat butcher they were legends and then i go to the paddock to table down here they got a farm about an hour away it's all it's like it's pretty cool how it's all set up but um they make beef and liver mints beef and heart mints beef and liver sausages so i get it if i'm if i'm have if i have 500 grams of that 25 percent of that will be liver or heart so that's how I, I i eat morgans every day and if i didn't i just take a desiccated uh supplement that's great. And yeah. I, I think like you're an example of someone who's ticking a lot of boxes. Mm. It, like if you're going to eat a meat predominant meat based diet, like you have to, like you should be ticking all those boxes and not just getting your source of nutrients from muscle meat because muscle meat is not going to tick boxes that organ meats and seafood, like yes. your omega fatty acids and, and salmon, like you were just eating before oysters, rich in zinc and selenium, like mm. you the way you're ticking boxes, like um, Paul Saladino, Dr. Paul yes. Saladino, he's talking about, you're right, we can get the majority of our nutrients from nose to tail, head to tail, meats. Mm. And yeah, well, like we're pretty on the money there, like majority. Mm, but yeah, you have to do that. That's a bit, it's like, yes, it's, yeah, it's very different. It's chalk and cheese compared to what people, you can't just eat, just smack and keep smacking steaks. Right. And like, I think that's what allures people. Like I saw, I saw Woody um, kind of experiment with it and saw for, some for photos. Three days. Huh? Probably for three days. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he posted about it. So that means he's serious, obviously. 100, 100. But like, that's an example of people get like drawn to the sexiness of it. They try it out. Like, oh, I'm carnivore now. I'm like, there's levels. Like there's, there's ways to do this in an effective way. Mm. And I think you're an example of someone who's ticking those boxes, which is great. Um, on the urine thing, why it smells, uh, it's quite it's quite easy to explain that. I mean, a part of amino amino acids are the building blocks of protein. Once you break down amino acids, they produce urea, and mm. that gets passed through your urine. Um, and so, urea is is like a sign that you're intaking a lot of protein, or you're breaking down a lot of muscle tissue. Is that scenty, zesty smell in your mm, urine. It's so it's great. normal. Oh, it's, it's okay? Just a, yeah, it's, well, particularly if your predominant caloric source is meat. Yes. Like that is expected that your urine will smell because you're getting a higher production of urea, which is what gives, because it's a, uh, urea is made from ammonia, mm. right? So it has a very strong smell. So that is not necessarily an indicator of... Uh, something's really wrong. Uh, something's wrong. Let's touch on a few points there because we sort of, I think, I, f I feel like we um, danced on a couple of topics there that, yeah, are, yeah. that are key and they're kind of like carnivore highlights. So let's go back to bowel movements. Um, yes. Give us, 
throw some knowledge bombs at us about what most people's bowel movements are. Like I sort of just touched on what mine were, what mine are on the carnivore diet and what it means. Okay. So most people's bowel movements and general gastrointestinal health is pretty shit, Mm -hmm. right? Pun intended. Like it's constipation, it's bloating, it's inconsistent bowel movements. It's like one day I'm, I'm consistent. The next day I, I got diarrhea. Like what's going on? Why yep. is that? Uh, most people, like, and it comes out in skin conditions as well, which you didn't have to experience, but I have, and many people do. So that's how it can, ex- common ways it can express itself. But then we have to ask why, what's triggering this? I know that was one of the things that, that we talked about. So mm-hmm. there are like, why can carbohydrates be problemsome for people? and plants because there are a number of compounds within plants that can trigger inflammatory uh, immune system reactions. And that's another component of inflammation. When, when the immune system uh, creates a, a mobilizes a response and increases white blood cells and increases body temperature, like when you get flu or the cold, that is another example of inflammation helping fight and destroy pathogenic bacteria. And so just a little side note, but let's go to the plants. What can be, why can they be toxic? Well, we have things like nightshades. I'm just going to reel them off. Then we can talk about them. Nightshades, oxalates, lectins, phytic acid, uh, phytochemicals, and FODMAPs. Have you heard of FODMAP? No. Oh, this is beautiful. FODMAP is a classification you know, we talked about carbohydrates before. They're a classification of short chain carbohydrates. So they have short chemical structures and they are commonally found in, look at the fructose, oligosaccharides, monosaccharides, disaccharides, and polyols. Okay. So these are the different categories that are very commonly found in whether it be potatoes or like vegetables. And so the, and it depends on the, the compound that depends on the vegetable and the, and the, or the starch, for example, like how they can, how much they can be a problem because the dose makes the poison. So it depends on how much dose you have, but a problem with FODMAPs and why a lot of people can't tolerate uh, carbohydrates well is because of, of a common condition called SIBO. I don't know. I'm throwing a lot of concepts out there. Well, I'll try and connect the dots. We talked about IBS. That's just a classification of symptoms. Very common. A lot of people going through GI issues. All right. What is that really? Well, cl- clinically, like really that is SIBO. SIBO is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Majority of the microbiota bacteria is supposed to be housed in the large intestine. What happens with SIBO is you get a migration from the large to the small intestine higher up. Then, I have my plants, I have my sugars, I have my carbohydrates. Everything's well and good. It tastes great. When After they get digested through the stomach, they get passed into the small intestine. Then the bacteria that's migrated up begins to ferment on these carbohydrates. And as a result, they produce gases like methane. What's methane? Like that's a part of... uh, what's in your farts, like when you become gassy. And so people who get gassy or belching or like quick 
acute responses after eating a high carbohydrate meal that maybe their joints get sore, rheumatoid mm. arthritis, inflammation. Like this is one strong link to underlying gastrointestinal damage and bacterial overgrowth commonly described as SIBO. And so we have to ask, well, in this case, like I've had SIBO, you can get it diagnosed by a, a breath test and imagine bloating every single meal. Well, a lot um, of people have that, don't they? What the, what's going on? What the yeah. You don't want to live with that. Bro, people can't believe it. This is, like, this is, this is the analogy I need to use. Yeah. When I, I can eat a kilo of steak yeah. and not feel like I've eaten. Like I can feel like I've not eaten anything. It's so it's like I'm not full, but I'm like sorry, I'm full, but I'm not hungry. But I can't like do you know what I mean? It's not like I'm like, oh my god, I've just eaten it. You just don't get that feeling at all. It's like, yeah. oh, I've just like I don't know that I've eaten, but I'm yeah, I'm I'm good. It's the weirdest thing. And people have the complete they're like Oh my god! If you eat that meat, you're going to explode. But it's the opposite. <laughs> but you can't you can't understand or believe it until you've done it. Yeah, and that makes sense because a lot of people get really stuffed, right? They feel so stuffed and full of fluid. One, because people drink a lot of water when they eat. Yes. Two, because they eat a lot of fibrous foods. What does fiber do? It draws water in. Mm. It's, it's it draws water into the intestinal tract and the stomach, particularly intestinal tract. And it's going to make you feel bloated and full because you're drawing water in. And some of that is normal. But some of that is problemsome and taking advantage, like your body's not responding responding well to fiber uh, for other reasons we can get into. Bro, I never, I, I do not, I do not fart anymore. <laughs> I swear to God, I just, I, I tell the boys all the time, like they, you know, you know, when you're in a group of the footy boys, and everyone, I, I just say, bro, it's not me. I haven't farted in fucking <laughs> six months. <laughs> it can't be me. It's not I don't me, get bro. gassy I don't, anymore. I don't it's fart anymore, baby. It's crazy. But, that, yeah. but it's great to hear the explanation of what is actually going on there. So you, basically, but the diet that you're on and that many people go on through this meat, predominant meat-based, even a ketogenics like, can, can produce similar results, but ketogenic has some plants in it, um, can produce similar results because you're not feeding that potentially overgrowth of bacteria with its food, with, with what it will use to make you gassy or contribute to bloating or constipation, you know, and that's SIBO is one explanation of, of how carbohydrates can be problemsome. There's candida overgrowth, which is a, everybody's got candida albicans. They're just, uh, what are they? How can I explain? I don't even know. I don't even know if I have a, like a, a really clear definition right now, but maybe it'll come to me or I'll pull it up. But this is just another example of, how there are compounds within our guts that can oh it's like yeast uh mm. it's like a, it's like a uh, like type of like a type of yeast and it can feed off carbohydrates it does feed off carbohydrates that's another example of how that can be problemsome and, and so these are very common conditions most people just walk around and they don't even realize what's going on 100%. they like oh this is how i feel now i get i get bloated but i forget about it like you don't remember how good you could actually feel what do you put that down to? Like, do people need the awareness or like, cause when I, I, I'm someone who's in tune, but also extremely interested 
you know, and if we blanket term it as human optimization or just like feeling good all the time. Like if I have, I talk to people now, I've been in a high performance environment. So like if, I, if I've got a niggle physio, yo, I can't need to see you. Like that's, I get it sorted straight away. But when people are saying they've, they're living in back pain, for example, or pain and they've had it for 18, I'm like, what do you mean? Like get that fixed, like sort it out. Like, so if you're bloating every day, every meal, no, that's not just how it is in the real way of life. Sort it, sort it out. Yes. And guess what? Like these diet interventions can be a tool to manage those symptoms. Great. But let's not get it twisted. We didn't get to the root cause. I think that's the thing. It's like, how did, what, what pushed us into the extreme diet? Okay. That's one thing, these symptoms, these problems, these, but then hold on. What was the roots beneath that? Like, why, like, why did you have gastrointestinal issues? Like, how do we address that? And we can, but I think, cause then you get pushed into like a certain diet model and then people start to say things like, like all plants are toxic for everybody. Like carbohydrates are bad for like everybody. And I think this just, it's a, the way of thinking and the reasoning is flawed. And I would like to explore how we can not demonize food groups mm. because like anthropologically, historically, like, yeah, like, I don't know, I'm never, I know this is very contentious, but it seems like, and I've really tried to do my research here, it appears like the totality of evidence points in the direction that we were omnivorous to different extents in different regions and different uh, tribes, depending on the climate, there's nuances, but, and so can we function and thrive off a plant-based only or a meat-based only? It seems like it. What, what, what are you basing the fact that um, ancestrally we were omnivorous? I'm basing that off books like Sapiens, Yuval Noah Harari. Um, I'm basing that off. Uh, actually, let me let me pull something up. Yeah, there but was pull a you recent need. paper published by Nature. I think they looked at that, like archaeological evidence um, of a Neanderthal. Okay, Neanderthal. We share like one to four percent of. They're one of our ancestors. Like one to four percent of Neanderthal DNA we have. And they found by looking at their teeth, okay, they were able to do like teeth extractions. They were able to see the type of bacteria that breaks down foods. And one thing is quite confident and obvious is that we definitely did consume meat. That's obvious, right? Uh, different abundances depending on our region. Obviously harder to get to. than it is now, obviously. Harder to get. Well, meat wouldn't have been, it's not as easy to get as it is now. Oh, of course. Would have been right? not a luxury, but it's, you know. You, you got to catch that. Yeah. You got to fish for it. You got to catch it. Uh, and so maybe the timing of our meat intake would have been different. Mm. Um, but so, yeah, uh, when we're talking about anthropology, which I will, I'm not an expert in by any, any stretch, um, or it's, the, it's called The Evolution and Changing Ecology of African Hominid Oral Microbiome. Uh, they found that a high degree of similarity between Neanderthals and modern humans, including an apparent homo-specific acquisition of salivary amylase. Salivary amylase helps, helps break down sugars, starch, okay? 
you're producing your saliva before you're about to eat and your, your gut does too. Or your, your, uh, yeah. Uh, so salivary amylase, uh, we found that they had the capability as a result of oral streptococci, which is a type of bacteria that they found is associated with this breakdown of carbohydrates and sugar, suggesting we adapted to eating more starchy plants long before the invention of agriculture 10,000 years ago. And so that's one recent paper that indicates that some of our ancestors were eating starchy foods as well. And we had the, the, the capacity to break down carbohydrates. I mean, why would we produce salivary amylase? Why would we produce pancreatic, like our pancreas produce uh, pancreatic amylase? Like it's to help break down starches. Like obviously it's clear, like our body is telling us we're not just designed to eat meat only. We can break down starches as well. We can break down plants, but to what extent and what ratio is going to be depending on your ethnicity and your environment and where you come from and what you can tolerate. Mm, interesting. What about to, to your point, and you touched on it before, um, the, tox, the toxins in plants. Now, this is one of the main factors in a carnivore diet as to why... The whole basis of the diet is to avoid plants and to have a meat-only diet. Can you give some more context as to? Sure. Because it's the first thing. It's like, like imagine I say, oh no, I don't eat any fruit or vegetables. I, what What do you mean? You just people eat flip meat. out. You just eat meat. I'm like, yeah, well, and then I don't really go into details because nah. I can't explain it. But yeah. I've I've heard it explained quite well. But so your phytotoxins, all this stuff. On a base level, what is the reason why carnivores don't eat vegetables? Uh, to, it's, it's, I don't want to summarize an entire... Uh, you know what? I probably could. Um, it's, plants have natural defense mechanisms, just yes. like animals do. And inbuilt in their structure, in their root systems, in their leaves, uh, in their stems, uh, they produce certain chemicals that help ward off mold help ward off predation from insects and bugs right it would kill bugs the dose of some of these toxins uh like uh, like some of nightshades you know we find in tomatoes eggplants potatoes like so, uh, solanine uh nicotine caps uh, i keep messing up the word capsaicin these nightshade chemical compounds are going to like harm insects and like the people that try and eat them. Right. But we have to then ask, okay, the dose makes the poison. Okay. So at some point, this dose of oxalate lectins uh, or phytochemicals would be a problem. Absolutely. And it's going to depend on the individual and how well they can tolerate it. And so the argument of that, is common in the carnivore community of just plants being a toxin. It. Hey? So, yeah, just eliminate it. Yeah, because like, all right, well, let's eliminate the thing that's causing inflammation and stress through the body and causing this, contributing to this response. So you right, agree that it does? It does what? You agree that plants do do that? They have defense mechanisms that produce chemicals that can be a serious problem in many people. Absolutely, I agree. Yeah, wow. Well, that's a big but, statement. <laughs> but... Well, let's let's add a caveat. Okay. Don't pull don't pull that and then post it, right? God, that's a I'm going to clip that. <laughs> Why? Gonna, Why is it I'm happening? I'm going to clip it and then I'm going to put a stake next to you. 
Alexander is the carnival man. <laughs> and all disclosure, I don't care what what people eat. No, I, I I'm omnivorous. I have no agenda. I'm not Dr. Paleo or Dr. Omnivore or Dr. Uh, plant guy. I'm just no. And aside. we'll get to that because it's uh, I I do like your um, mentality on food and that relationship. Yeah, we, we will get to that. Um, no, that it's clear that plants can be a problem. That carbohydrates can be a problem. This is obvious anecdotally, even in some research. Mechanistically, like uh, in in petri dishes, we can see this these problems, right? But why? Why is it happening? Is it the plant's fault? Are we just going to demonize the plant or the meat or the whatever? Or are we going to what the plants are doing is they're taking advantage of an unhealthy uh, state, an unhealthy gap, typically an unhealthy, damaged, inflammatory gastrointestinal tract. There are many people who can tolerate plant toxins perfectly fine. Like me for right now, like I can tolerate like most fine, but I have done years of work and lifestyle change and stress management protocols and gut protocols. This is what I'm saying, Alex, like what, surely we don't, surely it can't be that hard that you have to go, like have this crazy experience of trial and error of elimination and everything just to get to a point where you know what you can eat. Is it really, is it really, is that really what it's going to take for everyone to get to a, a certain level? Not everyone. Some people, it depends on the dude. Some people are walking around with serious autoimmune conditions. Like, they're going to need a pretty hefty intervention. You know, Jordan Peterson and Michaela Peterson. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, they have seen amazing results on, and they're, they're like on a very strict carnivore diet, mm. but I didn't hear once. Now I, I didn't, I don't speak to them. I don't know, but I never heard once in the hours of conversation about this, about them getting to the root cause and like taking stool tests and, and seeing like under a really good uh, practitioner on like, okay, what type of, gastrointestinal issues, neurological issues. What are the root causes here? Why did this happen? Now they have a particularly complex case, but for most people they eliminate and they feel better. And we forget to ask why, why were they a problem in the first place? Like, mm. let, shouldn't we figure that out? Like, because then if you go back to plants again or, or carbs again, oh, I got, I'm back. My symptoms are back again. Of course, they're back. You never got to the root cause of the issue. So, yeah. So you're saying that's probably more of a necessary thing when, um, when you do have clearly have something like, for example, an autoimmune disease. You would try and go to those lengths. Yeah, like if I'm working with with people who have autoimmune conditions or gastrointestinal issues, which is very common. I would look one of my interventions absolutely would be an elimination of toxic chemical compounds that are causing further damage neurologically and gastrointestinally. I would, I would, but the goal for me, the outcome is not to make this a permanent intervention. Mm. The goal is to be able to tolerate all food groups to a reasonable extent and develop a healthy relationship with all foods Yes. I think that's possible So the, for most. So it is possible to have a healthy relationship with all foods, even if some of those foods are toxic. Toxic, again, depends on, like, we say the word toxic, the dose makes the poison. So, like, it, it depends, like, 
it depends on the state. If the person's healed their issues and you're consuming toxic, you know, quote unquote plants or chemicals, uh, those aren't going to be as toxic to you because you have healed and addressed the specific issues. Like, have you heard of leaky gut intestinal permeability? I have. Yeah. So that's like, that's a big one here. Like we have these tight junction proteins. Like if you guys are watching on video, I got two fists together, right? What happens with a lot of people with leaky gut, exactly what happens is these tight junctions, they open up and macromolecules and lectins and certain inf- compounds get through into the bloodstream. And they mo- and what happens is then they trigger, uh, they mobilize a, a autoimmune uh, immu- response. And then that can come in whatever symptom that you get, right? We've mentioned a bunch of symptoms that can happen, but there's this, what's supposed to happen like after you eat things like gluten and lectins is like, even if it does open a little bit, it's calcium is supposed to be secreted and it's supposed to zip it back up and close back up. But with people with chronic gastrointestinal issues, high stress lifestyles, damage to their epithelial gut lining tissue is it opens and it stays opens and then it gets worse and degrades and degrades and degrades. So those are people are going to, they're going to struggle bad with all these plant compounds. Mm. Now, what if we address the issues? What if we heal the gut? We, we understand how to antimicrobial protocol, a healing protocol, right? Supplementation, nutrition, stress interventions. All right. Six months to 12 months later, oh, the gut lining is healed a lot more. Now the actual structure of the gut is more resilient and functioning to a much more effective level. So when you do consume lectins and nightshades and gluten, oh, it doesn't pass through or it doesn't pass through anywhere near as much and you don't get that heightened immune system response. So you can tolerate these toxic plant compounds and carbohydrate compounds if you address the underlying issues of why it was a problem in the first place. What caused the underlying issues in the first place? That's the question, isn't it? That's the million dollar question, Mr. Earl. Because what this is what I'm hearing. I'm hearing you've eliminated these foods mm-hmm. to fix the issues. And now that you're fixed, now you're going to bring these foods back in. Well, but you're not fit. You, you most likely aren't fixed, but guess what? There's going to be some healing going on. You've eliminated all of these foods that were triggering inflammations and problems because you've eliminated. Then why would you reintroduce give- them? Because you, because you're so desperate to have vegetables and shit like that. Maybe, maybe you see benefits to reintroducing them. Maybe well, like what do you see? numerous. Hey, do you see it? Cause I'm sitting here going, well, that doesn't make sense to me. If I've healed the issues, now I'm going back to what we're saying was potentially a cause of the issues. No, but that's not what we're saying. The, the plant compounds in themselves, we're not saying was the cause. We're saying, all right, because you asked like, oh, how, how, why do we have these like gastrointestinal issues? Like what's the cause of that? That's the question. But eliminating and, them stop, but eliminating them stopped the problems and healed the issues. So that's got to say something, doesn't it? Well, we've eliminated the triggers. The, eliminating the triggers doesn't necessarily heal and fix the problem. It can help but it's going to be very case dependent on whether eliminating these compounds is going to, you know, fix your gut. It's usually not in of itself. Usually you need a bit more of a comprehensive approach because 
what's causing a lot of these gastrointestinal issues is the, the lifestyle we're living. And I used to be resistive against this answer, but like stress, mm. like that's a very like common word. It's like, what do you mean? Like you mean stress? It's very broad. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Right. But emotional, cognitive, physical, sleep deprivation, air, water, like all these like stresses that can come in many different factors slowly put more and more of a burden on different body systems and organs, right? And so year after year, month after month, you get a slow degradation and you just, you're becoming more wound up, more sleep deprived. You're relying more on caffeine. Your nutrition choice is getting poorer where people, it's not like a light switch. Usually people get to these unhealthy states over a period of years and time of poor lifestyle. And so really one of the major things that we need to address like through a population is like these lifestyle factors. Like how do we get people living more, learning how to control their stress and manage their habits and their environmental toxins a little bit more effectively so we can improve the state of our brain and gut connection. So that I think is a big part of the answer in auditing our own lives into saying, okay, what are the, how well am I doing these big pillars from sleep to hydration, to nutrition, to physical training, to mindfulness. Most people, it's pretty, it's not good. It's not good that they're not establishing constructive habits in those realms. So I would look like we can address many of these gut issues through those those realms, okay? Just by changing lifestyle factors without all these complex nutrition changes. But the nutrition and supplementation is gonna be a big help as well. Um, but it's like, I think you mentioned before, it's like, why would we introduce them? Um, why would we introduce them? Because I guess some people don't see much of a benefit to them. Is that, is that where you were getting at? Well, I was sort of saying you've you've eliminated them. You've um, had some success healing or fixing some issues, and now you're going to reintroduce them. It seems counterproductive. Not if we can tolerate them. Yeah, but I don't. That's 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 not. That doesn't appeal to me so much. Tolerate, like I don't want to tolerate things. I want things that are. I don't want to tolerate things that are potentially bad. But then you might say, well, hey, we're having a go over here at plants because they've got these defense mechanisms but you know meat might come with its own issues i don't know you may have an opinion on that and it does there's like heterocyclic amines and there's there's other like that's that's a whole nother thing like yeah each macronutrient and compound has its pros and cons and i think it's just about capping the downsides you know the fact that you can get most of your nutrients from from meat nose tail is amazing I mean, and then there's the topic of fiber, like. Yeah, well, talk to me about fiber because in the carnivore circles, in some stuff that I've um, consumed some information and particularly mm. early on, the fiber myth, it was uh, broadcasted as. What do, we, what do we know about, tell me anything about fiber. What do we know about fiber? Because everyone, most of the things that we're talking about, people know literally the word. <laughs> and maybe it's, maybe it's base function. Yeah. Uh, well, tell me what you've heard. 
I literally could not tell you what I don't. Fiber is in some foods and it helps you go to the toilet. Okay. And that's probably like represents a base common understanding that most people have. Uh, So fiber comes in many different forms. It's a, it's a non-starch polysaccharide. Okay. So it's many, it's a long chain of, uh, of molecules and it's mostly like a common one is cellulose and it's found in majority of like the plant cell. Okay. That's so cellulose is, is a term for the majority of dietary fiber and our body, there's soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. Like our body can digest and break down some and then some other fibers, our body cannot. Can and you give so, examples? Or cellulose. Soluble and insoluble fibers? Solu- uh, like pectin is an example of a soluble fiber. Cellulose is an example of an insoluble fiber and they're found in different like germs and seeds and plants, which I'll, I'll pull up in a second. Yeah. Um, but one benefit and like, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to sell anybody on fiber. I'm just going to, let me just list yes. like some of the stuff. I don't really care if people do or don't let's, let's list them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it helps retain water which adds stool to bulk, which is why plant-based eaters typically have more bulk in their stool and more frequent bowel movements. Um, it is, helps with the feeling satiated and filling you up because it draws water in. So it can be a tool for weight management and during tough nutrition protocols. Uh, it slows down gut motility. Okay, so the, the transit of food through the gastrointestinal tract it can help regulate your blood glucose levels and not get them spiked as much. Okay. And that can be helpful for management of certain, you know, uh, blood glucose uh, issues like diabetes and it can help microbiota diversity. I think that's a, that's one benefit of plants is that the more diverse your nutrition is the more diverse your microbiota is. And that's a, Microbiota diversity is typically known as a pretty valuable beneficial thing. And there's still so much we don't know about the microbiome, but generally we want a diverse microbiome because every strain of bacteria has benefits and cons that can confer benefits to its host in numerous ways that are quite overwhelming. And I don't even know uh, a heap on some of them can produce short chain fatty acids like butyrate, which is very, it's an anti-inflammatory uh, short chain fatty acid. Um, another interesting role of fiber is it can bind to some cholesterol in the small intestine. So for people with, and this is another conversation. Like, yeah, we'll uh, touch on that. Oh, Jesus Lord. <laughs> oh. We'll touch if you, on it because I got If to, high cholesterol is bad for you, Okay, if if that's a problem for you, then a high fiber diet can help sequester some cholesterol uh, out, uh, and also can sequester some bile. Bile helps emulsify fats. People with, and that can be helpful for fat digestion, or if you're having problems with your gallbladder, for example. So there are multiple roles of fiber. I don't know. If a human, I don't know how well a human can function without 
fiber or with very little fiber throughout their life. They may be just fine and we may just be able to adapt perfectly fine, but there are roles and functions of it. We're pretty confident on that, but there might be other adaptive mechanisms that kick in to counterbalance this. So I'm not going to die on the sort of fiber is the best or fiber is the worst. We got to see. Like mm. the jury's out. I need, we need. I need some studies. We're so early with dietary study, aren't we? Like it's so early, it's ridiculous. And now even the a diet style that we're talking about that completely flips the script from what's normal or what we've been um, educated on. It's just so early. Like there is no definitive answers. But it's funny. Like even I, I get caught in the traps. You know, like I, I'm I'm on this carnivore diet. I was all in on it. Um, I felt good. I instantly adopt the methodologies. Not fiber. I can't have fiber. Like, you know, the other day, um, <laughs> a good, good. Like, I was with my chick uh, mate Ellie, and she's, um, you know, we were going to the gym. She always has this, you know, that grape extend that supplement. Grape we had extend. extend. It's called extend. It's a, no. it's a, it's an amazing BCAA supplement. It's, it's grape flavor. It's dead set the best thing you've ever tasted. So I'm always just stealing it out of a water bottle, and then. We're in the car and I was like, oh, yeah, make one of them drinks. Then she goes back and she starts pouring fiber into it. I was like, what are you doing? What's going I felt so betrayed. I was like, what the fuck are you doing? But who told you to put this shit in here? Are you telling me every time I've drank this, you've been putting fiber in it? I was filthy. Oh, she did. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck's going on? You didn't know. I didn't know. So oh. there you go. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just funny how you can adopt principles. And I get it on some level, but I don't know. I guess I guess for myself, um, I kind of need to really, as you said, go through a process of really trial and error and seeing what is an issue. But, I, you know, I'd, I'd probably like to finish off this on just contextualizing what would be um, when we get to that point, what would be the ideal dietary situation? Because I definitely am moving into more of a hybrid. I mean, I went from an extreme carnivore yeah. um, practitioner to say your Paul Saladino, who goes by the name of Carnivore MD, for people who want to reference it on Instagram, yeah. who opens up a bit more of an extension on what he perceives to be as non-toxic foods. So you got mm-hmm. like... He promotes honey, berries, um, smallest amount of vegetables, some season- avocado. Yeah, avocado, seasonal fruits. Um, so things like that, which I'm kind of all for. There's a guy called Anthony Minicello, um, who's a ex rugby league player, who's notoriously known for um, fully redesigning his, well, recreating his body and his dietary um, lifestyle. Um, influenced by a guy called Aaron McKenzie from Sydney, but. He talks about a couple of things. He's, he talks about like um, eating seasonal, so seasonal fruit and veg, um, the way you cook your food. So preferably he's always doing a lot of slow cooking, um, what oils you use, the quality of your meats, and then um, I think the the source of your carbohydrates. So, the, you know, that is far more appealing as well, especially in with in lifestyle and the environment we live in. So... I kind of, I kind of do like and understand that. Even now, I'm trialing, um, I'm trialing implementing some white rice hmm. into cool. my diet. So How's like, that been? Yeah, it's been interesting. Like, I, I do notice a difference. Um, it's, it's a, it's yeah, it's it's a weird one. Like, what am I looking for? If my level of education, I'm looking for like, do I get tired? 
Um, yeah. How does it how does it affect my body? Um, like from an aesthetic purpose, like how do I look? Water retention, things like that. Um, you know, there's a lot of things aesthetically that I really liked about the carnivore diet. I mean, once I got over. Once I got over the weight loss, which initially was like five, six kilos, I was shitting myself, especially in a football football environment. I was like, oh, what? Like, this isn't good. But then I put it back on, and my weight used to fluctuate all the time, but my weight doesn't move now with carnivore. It just sits there. And if I, if I don't train much and I'm eating the way I do because it's high fat, then I notice it doesn't take long. But if I'm training, like, I always maintain because I don't count, count calories either. I just sort of eat, but... I just noticed I definitely feel like there was a change in my physique. Like just, yeah. you know, from I don't know whether it's just like constantly high protein or what, but I just noticed a change in my physique and the flux, definitely the fluctuations because I feel like I always wondered, like was just just constant fluctuations and whether that was like carbs or whatever having that effect. But so there are, there have been some good qualities in terms of that, even like, going to the gym like i go to the gym on most times just a bulletproof coffee and lift like you know just as good as ever and i there's no way i couldn't even i couldn't do anything without eating before like nah, i couldn't function there's just no way so it's like there's a lot of cool things let me i'm, I'm you want to know that answer like that's an interesting comment i actually made a post about it or about to make a post about it by people by the time people listen to this mm. on why people get weight fluctuations so much on a carbohydrate diet and why people stabilize and lose so much weight so quickly on a more meat-based diet. Well, tell us. Well, I need to turn on my light, sh- Mr. Earl. <laughs> All right. So, carbohydrates. Mm. Uh, what's happening there? What, why we uh, When we're going off that diet, off a carbohydrate diet, why do people lose weight so quickly? Why do you stabilize more on a meat-based diet? And why do you fluctuate so much on a ad libitum, eat whatever you want, omnivorous diet? So you've eliminated, what people will do, they'll make a switch usually. They'll eliminate a, like their entire sugar carbohydrate intake in a matter of like 24 hours. And so they must think, oh, carbs are evil. Carbs are the worst. Like. Mm. It's carbs making me fat. <laughs> no, it's it's not. It's just uh, I'll explain. So every gr- you have glucose, which carbohydrate is the term we use as for food, and then in that chemically is commonly uh, glucose. For every gram of glucose that we intake, we store it as glycogen in the liver and the muscle. Okay, for every gram that is stored comes along with it about three grams of water, okay? So then we think, okay, the average liver stores around 100 grams of glycogen. Skeletal muscle will store 300 to 500 grams, depending how big you are. And so that's already about one and a half to two kilos of fluid and water just from feeling your liver and skeletal muscle glycogen stores. Now, this isn't now to say that's good. Well, that's going to have a big impact in those first couple of days when you eliminate carbohydrates, you're just not holding onto as much water. You're going to look leaner. Mm-hmm. 
And that's a big factor to, and, and also you're just not consuming, now you're not consuming carbohydrates. Literally your liver and muscle is not, is just not going to f- be filled with anywhere near as much glycogen. You're going to be creating it from non-carbohydrate forms predominantly uh, from amino acids and glycerol, for example. So uh, basically one, one word answer is uh, fluid water retention. Yes. Is a big answer. And mm. um, of course you can be more stable. You're not mm. consuming carbohydrates daily Mm. yeah 100 percent. what about um i was just thinking about another conversation and i'm keen to get your interest this was another thing i went through so i played i can remember two games um on the on the sort of beginning of my carnival journey first one was on the second week i played a game and it was just like it was tough. It was still tough because I was still going through that adaptation. I was all in, you know. I was I was tempted to make some changes pre the game, but I didn't. The next time I played, I was like a fair few games in and noticed a dramatic difference. Like I'd started, you know, I I was for that year I was pring on lifting on lifts, like so doing my personal best, fasted and all this. I was like, well, this is different. This is weird. Um, and then went to a game and, you know, my, my night before the game meal was um, I had a steak. I had a steak, but I didn't have to, but I had a steak and I had some like maybe half a kilo of raw yogurt with some honey. Um, that was my pre-game meal the night before. Then on the day I woke up, I had like um, a breakfast and then some fish. And then my pre-game meal like three hours before was like two steaks just so weird you know this is like coming from oh yeah you're supposed to have a bowl of pasta Mm. then i had two steaks and then you know before the game if i was starting to get a little bit itchy i just have my bone broth and then my bulletproof coffee and i was flying like felt a million bucks energy like my body satiety all of that stuff just felt mickey mouse so that was very interesting but then that ties into a conversation with an explanation of from Dom, who's um, was my original practitioner and educator on carnivore, talks about why would you want to live and adapt off one energy system? Why wouldn't you want to be a hybrid machine where you can, where your main source of energy is fat, and then you can utilize the energy benefits, which I'm sure you can touch on of carbohydrates rather than being driven by one single source kind of made a bit of sense a hybrid energy machine it kind of made a bit of sense so but you have to be fat adapted you would you you would agree with that it's not just you can't for a day just eat fats and go like sweet now i'm like you have to become fat adapted do you acknowledge that that's that's a real thing like becoming fat adapted it definitely it is it seems like it is yeah it definitely feels like it is because that just can't Uh, happen overnight that's a yes the adaptation that occurs um i can't really speak on it mechanistically and explain Mm. it but the comment that you made about well why would we just want to why don't we be the hybrid athlete that can function off multiple what food sources essentially and yeah energy sources yeah yeah energy sources so i don't know i dom's not here to defend that comment Mm. so that's like i'm I'm unfair to criticize him but like just the like we do that anyway 
like like metabolically like energy systems do that anyway like when we never like you people think it's like a light switch it's like oh i'm utilizing carbs or i'm not i'm utilizing fat or i'm not and it's not how metabolism or energy systems work aerobic and anaerobic respiration depending on which one you're utilizing more of uh we generally use all three energy, well, the major two energy substrates, uh, glucose and fatty acids, just to different extents, depending on the percentage of VO2 max that we're working at, which is a percentage of maximal oxygen uptake. And so if you're doing something more aerobic, something more steady state, utilizing oxygen to support cellular metabolism, uh, you're going to use both glucose and fatty acids now just to different extents and just like when you are doing something very uh, explosive or uh short term you're going to be utilizing a bit more glucose and phosphocreatine as part of the atppc system now i don't know how so the answer is well we're using both like all the time now you're body mm, but will- there's 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 a bit to that because have you okay have you ever gone on a fat dominant keto based diet i wouldn't say i didn't go ketogenic but i've done more fat dominant before there's a difference there's a difference in the way you feel like there just is in terms of like i can tell you right now when i the tip you got to also remember alex fat is demonized for most people mm. if you eat fat you get fat that is the that realistically let's be honest general population that is the thought yeah it's low fat diet and we do consume a lot of carbohydrates now even some people might go lower carb but they're still going lower fat like so i've been on a higher fat moderate to lower fat diet with higher protein now i'm hungry all the time my energy levels go up down like a roller coaster now I've been on a fat, basically fat only source diet, but high protein too. But high protein too. Yeah. Do not need to snack. Could yep. not eat all day if I wanted to, and function like these are things that I never thought were real. Like I'm here talking two hours and I'm ravenous. Like I need to eat before. Like that's what it was. Yeah. It's such a breath of fresh air to feel like that and not survive to still be able to thrive and function. Like so, it is. It needs to be acknowledge that it is different so if i have become fat adapted now as i'm saying tomorrow if you just go and start to eat high fat this the cravings are going to be real the all the things we just spoke about are still going to be there it takes it takes a time but if you become fat adapted and then are able to utilize carbohydrates for the scientific reasonings that you just explained to get the energy benefits and the role that glucose plays that's is more to the point does that maybe make more sense yeah uh once you're fat adapted but yeah and i think particularly on like let's not demonize a food group let's not demonize fat right i'm definitely not but it has been and it's like it plays such an important critical role uh for even cholesterol like which is contained within fat uh being so important for being a precursor for so many hormones yes uh, that we need and like it's not the enemy 
it depends on the context of your situation. Um, of course, it comes down to like there's there's poor sources of fat, like anything. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but there was but on that, that point, yeah, 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 go ahead. Do you do you recognize the potential benefit of being a hybrid? Let's call it, let's call it for lack of a better term, this hybrid energy machine where you're fat adapted, and we acknowledge that that just doesn't mean that tomorrow you just go and eat fats. You to become fat adapted and then implement and utilize carbohydrates for the benefits that we know they offer would be uh, that now you can understand the argument for like, why wouldn't you do that? Well, I, I definitely see benefit to that, particularly with how satiating protein is, right? So like, would you, why wouldn't it, why wouldn't we be recommending people do that? Become because, fat adapted and utilize carbs for the major beneficial reasons that they offer. Well, I, hmm, I think we can get to similar outcomes the other way as well. Like you can feel really good by sourcing energy from carbohydrates as well. Like it seems like we can, we can get to similar outcomes through a high carbohydrate diet and a high fat diet. But can you, can you, you can't be high fat, high carb. That's, that's no, that's be, that's a, that's not a good combo. That's what I'm saying. I th- I uh, feel like the the scale might be tipped in the fact that if you are on a now fat adapted realistically probably means high fat diet. So if you're on a um, high fat high protein diet and utilizing carbs again for the reasons that you mentioned. Well, when you say utilizing carbs, what do you mean? Okay, so do when you mean I like say the utilizing honey, avocado, well, whatever you want to, whatever you, whatever carbs we want to talk about, but the utilization of carbs, in my opinion, is as an energy source for a certain type of activity. And what I'm currently consuming is how significant a role does it play in muscle growth? Is it absolutely necessary? So that's why I'm like, let's play with the white rice and see what happens. Yeah. So look, you'll fill up your glycogen, muscle, liver stores. Um, you'll. Like the you'll, argument, oh, 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 I could have an argument or I could have a conversation and it be explained to me from a carnivore perspective saying that carbs are absolutely not necessary for anything for muscle growth. But people would come at you all day for that. Well, your body creates its own source of uh, glucose and carbs, essentially sugar. Like it, you can eat all but fat and protein. Your body will consume, will make like your body will make it by gluconeogenesis. Yes. Glucose, eat, neo. Yeah. Huh? No, explain that. Explain that. So let's break it down. Glu, glu, glucose molecule. Neo means new. Genesis means creation. So we're creating new uh, sugar molecules, if you will, glucose molecules from non- carbohydrate forms the, protein. Is the br- protein amino acids glycerol which is the backbone of a fatty acid molecule mm-hmm. okay and other similar substrates but particularly those two so your body's gonna make it it has these mechanisms in place because the brain needs about 100 grams of glucose a day and so people think oh i need carbs no you don't need to eat them your, your body will make them. Is there any research? Is there any research or science currently that you accept that yeah. shows is there a superiority carbs over gluconeogenesis? I can't answer that. It's not that, conclusive. That, no, it hasn't even I been mean, studied. If if it was, I mean, this the like nutritional epidemiology it. and studies are just wrought with just errors mm. and like so many problems. But no, I, I unfortunately like. Do you have an opinion on it? Surely it seems to me on a base level that carbs would just be easier than gluconeogenesis. 
to create the same outcome? Surely just bang some carbs, easier. I think it depends on the baseline of where you come from. Like if you've already been doing that, then it, it's easier to keep doing that, right? But if you grew up on a high protein, high fat diet, maybe you come from like a, a tr- like you're the Hudza tribe and all you've been eating is meat and protein, right? Maybe transitioning is not going to be favorable. So I think it depends on what you've been doing. I think, I believe that we can, we can get high performance and good health from both realms of high carbohydrate, low, a low-ish fat. And when I say low fat, you can still get enough fat to support your endocrine system and hormones and high fat, high protein. Like I think they have their pros and cons, but nothing is ob- like there's nothing I've seen in my a billion hours of trying to understand all this in, in what is more obviously significantly favorable. Like Nothing. If we were to make it, it doesn't seem like one has a obvious, significant is the wow. key word benefit. If you control for many of the other variables we we're talking before, with lifestyle and stress and uh, addressing gut issues, if we have addressed those things, I don't see either one as a significant benefit without looking into the nuance of your individual context, your genetics. All right, here's one for you. What about satiety and sustained energy? Great. Well, satiety, high protein is going to beat that. You would would have to agree that the high-fat diet with – the high-fat with the carbs over the high-carbs with the fat, you have to agree that the high-fat diet gives you the benefits of satiety and sustained energy. I'll use protein because it's protein which is the most satiating macronutrient. Like, but if you that, have, I've I've eaten protein. If you have protein without the fat, mate, I'm hungry. I am hungry. I can't eat lean meats on a carnivore diet. If I eat lean meats, it's a game changer. I'm I'm starving. It's like I never ate. Yeah, I, you know what? It, it probably plays a factor that I'm not even aware of. Like, fat and protein together is probably the key to satiety. We notice with people. The carnivore diet is heavily built. Like you have to be eating fatty meats. You specifically go for the fatty cuts. Now, obviously, um, sourcing is a a major factor. But you, I cannot eat. (laughs) I remember this one funny thing actually. Again, this comes back to the carnivore and buying in. Uh, You don't eat chicken on the carnivore diet. Oh, really? Why? Why don't you? Why do you? Now, this is a funny point, but I'd like to see your opinion. Why don't you eat chicken? Mate, they're a useless animal. They can't they're even fly. <laughs> Why would you eat it? <laughs> that was... Um, I was like, what? That's, that's actually true. That puts me onto the point of Rogan. Now, he carries on. He only eats elk meat. Now, he talks about... There's actually a mad clip on YouTube. I'll, um, I'll post it up. But he talks about... Now, these elks, they're athletes. Now, he talks about what they go through their break their their makeup what the, what they are and he said when consuming that now he legit claims that when he consumes this meat he's like Feels he gets a feeling aggressive. like which is pretty crazy Paul Saladino actually says the same thing about when he eats organ meat now I probably don't even enough of it to really know but um what's your thoughts on that like the can the animals break that you know what like do you think that can actually have an effect the type of animal? Well, yeah, just your opinion. So, like, 
this, do you reckon, like, we, okay, if you were to, if you were to actually study the macronutrient breakdown of animals, that yeah. we may came, we might come in on the same ballpark. It has this much protein. It has this much protein. Blah blah blah. Yeah. But do you, like it, on a base level, you have to admit, like this athlete beast, you know, charged up alpha yeah. ma- like yeah. animal. Yeah. Surely eating that is got to be doing something. I think it's better than a damn flat, uh, flatless bird. <laughs> You know, like, what do I want to eat? Uh, a killer warrior or, or like, I know elks aren't killer warriors. I don't know, like a bear or like a elk or a, uh, you know, hey, well, let's go far with it. What about a tiger? You know, mm. a lion. Well, what, like, about a, what, what about a human? <laughs> what about you, man? You're a pretty good athlete. Just start surely, cooking you up. Surely I'd taste better than, you know, the bro down the road. <laughs> no, not, oh, ta- not taste better, but maybe I- or maybe I'm better for you. I don't know. Nutrient dense. No, I think there's... That's what I mean. There's something... Uh, I, I think there could be something definitely to that uh, because the lifestyle of the animal is very active. Mm. Fast twitch, uh, fast twitch um, fiber makeup. Uh, very lean, generally. Like kangaroos come to mind. Yes. Um, I don't, do you eat kangaroos? No, but again, that's only because of the leanness. Lean. Yeah. Mm. Mm. yeah. Yeah. You could just... It depends, right? You could just chuck it with a bunch of ghee and yes, uh, butter, true. but that just may not be necessary for you. But from an inflammatory perspective, there what like there, there's a difference between they did on on game meat and uh, like traditional wagyu meat. There's an Australian right. study. Yes, and, and tell me about it. Let like because there's differences in inflammation. Like so, just to be just before you while you're looking at that, just to be clear. Yes. We were we were talking about carbs and their inflammatory role. Does is fat not inflammatory? I now, think let's talk about like we're not talking about the shitty fat sources because we weren't talking about that about carbs either. Fats can particularly be very oxid uh, very inflammatory if they're oxidized. So if your heat if you're you gotta be careful about your oils. If you're heating right. certain oils to a very high heat, uh, it can produce certain Pro-oxidant, certain inflam- like it can make it very inflammatory for your body is like layman's way. Um, wow, okay. That, that's another thing I might give you a little more detail on if I can pull it up in time. Is that something but, to um, be, that sounds like something to be cautious of. Yes, it's, I would definitely be cautious of it. I mean, what oils do you use to cook? I use ghee. Is it? Yep. No, olive oil, avocado oil. No, just ghee. Boy, oh boy. How do you measure it? I think it's like, oh, you don't measure your calories. No, I don't. I would love to, but man, it's just crazy. The only thing is for me, like, I know that, I know roundabout, like I've gotten to a point where I know roundabout, but the, the one thing I do notice is pretty quickly, like if I'm eating the way I do with the higher fat, three meals a day, a lot of protein, like it's when you train, when you have a good training structure and you eat like this, you're, you're top of the world. But it doesn't take long if you're not training. You'll start to, you'll definitely start to notice um, a bit of body fat gain. Yeah, I mean, if you're eating the same caloric load, of course. Mm. Uh, what do you think you're generally sitting on, like per day? Oh, average? I don't even know, bro. Are you like pretty, pretty sharp on working it out? Uh, what right now? Like, I've caught all my nutrition, like every calorie uh, that comes I'd in and out. I, I know what's I, going on. I, I, res- I love that about you, but I just don't think I've got it in me. I would no, love to though. It's fine. Like it depends but I would love on your to do it. I just, it would be good to know. 
But then it's like oh, you go on those, you go on that app, and it's like I'm trying to type in steak, and it's like, oh, it's, hard. it's like which one? Oh, it's man. like yeah, it's better to be consistent than perfect. Yes, uh, but it's it's fine. Um, you don't people don't need to do it. Uh, but there was this. I'm trying to pull up two things at once. You know what I need? I need a Jamie. I need yeah, a guy. Hundred percent, we do. <laughs> we need we need one of them. Uh, that's um, that's that's what I'm aiming. That's what I want to get to. Where I've got a Jamie. That would be. A, you got you got any in the works? Well, not really, but okay, <laughs> we'll get there. Well, we'll get there. We're, we're looking for sponsors at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You you shout out a lot of uh, nutrition companies. Uh, well, like food companies, like these paddock to door people. Yes, I'm very generous. Yes, you are, but you support good people. Mm-hmm. You're a good man. Now we'll um we'll definitely build it out, but now nah, that would be that would be sick because it's so cool to just be able to reference anything. I reckon. Got it. Oh, I love it. Uh, so game meat, like, okay, is there a difference between game meat and like normal, typical, traditional meat? Like these really like strong motherfucker animals. Like, okay, is there a difference? Well, the study is called differences in postprandial, which means post meal inflammatory response to a modern versus traditional game meat meal because i let's let's say right now i think game meats are like a great source for nutrient density and they're generally superior uh like if you're gonna pick one you gotta pick only one i'd probably pick big game meats right Mm -hmm. so there's we talked about inflammation earlier in the conversation i said aisle six was one of them there's another one called tnf alpha TAG, T-A-G, they're just acronyms for certain inflammatory markers that we get after we eat. So postprandial levels for these markers that I mentioned were significantly higher after eating Wagyu compared with kangaroo. CRP, the other C-reactive protein, was significantly higher one hour after Wagyu and non-significantly higher two hours. So that the one hour is really the most significant. We conclude that meta-inflammation reaction to ingestion of new form of hybridized meat like Wagyu is indicative of low-grade systemic inflammation, immune reaction when compared with lean game meat. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes. Cool. So I think that could extend to elk, bear, Mm. whatever else you eat. And the other shit that we don't know about. You know, so much we probably don't know. Mm. So there's a difference there, but to go back, I mean, we could keep going. Hold on. Like you, you, we can keep, you want to keep going? Yep. Do you need to go somewhere? Nope. I don't know. <laughs> Good. Like triggers, like why would, like you brought up earlier. I think I want to like round out the point. It's like, why would I want to, like if, if I'm doing fine on meat and just a little bit of like low, low toxic plants, why would I need to go back? Yes. All right. Fair enough. That's it. Like, mm. that's fine. I think it depends on what's important to you. If you're perfectly fine going to the restaurant and abstaining from the pasta dish or never eating pasta or potato or rice again or eating it once a year or not eating a donut for the next five years or whatever or pizza, cool. Like as long as you are comfortable with accepting the structure to which you create yourself. But I think a lot of people feel uh, like constricted by the structure and they would love to be able to eat, you know, 
uh, a range of different foods and be able to effectively digest them without symptoms. And I think that is very possible. Uh, I'm an example of it. And there's numerous other examples of, of like, we do this all the time, helping people with their, with their gut issues. But if you're fine, like Shando, if you're fine, like the way you are and you're feeling great and you don't have a need to introduce, you know, other carbohydrate sources, do, do your thing. Mm. Why should anybody, I don't need to pressure you on the benefits of plants. Yeah, it's not so much that. It's more about, I want to be, I want to find the optimal I want to chase whatever that is. Now, the thing is, there's people saying that it's this, there's people saying it's that, there's people saying this is good, there's people saying that is good. Like, how... The, there's two points that I want to bring up. How, you know, when it's like, okay, don't eat vegetables, for example. Like, that's a pretty big pillar of being on a carnivore or animal-based diet. The, the vegetables, the nuts, the legumes, like, do not eat them because of X, and we've touched on Y the toxins now how significant is that like i need i need i kind of need a conclusion on that that's you know what i mean okay um we before we get a conclusion on that you said optimal why can't can there be more than one one optimal can there be different can, can many roads lead to rome with nutrition optimal can it be individualized is what they were you saying it absolutely is individualized, but there are common themes that apply to many people. That's important. Mm. But who says that Shonda Earl can't function and thrive with different nutritional lifestyle regimes? Maybe in 10 years' time, you go plant-based or you go back to more omnivorous, but you do omnivorous in a more intelligent way. You have all your organ meats, you got your oysters, you got your seafood, and you have a some select few different types of plants and tubers, right? Maybe that's another version of optimal. What's a tuber? Tuber is like a, a term, like an archaic historical term for like potato, okay. yams. Um, so I don't believe that there's like one answer. There's one diet that's going to be a perfect fit for you. I think it will change depending on how your lifestyle and health changes. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it, it gets increasingly hard to construct the right thing because, I mean, I, I do have some anecdotal evidence that I now respect or acknowledge for myself, which is being on a fat-adapted dominant diet, I can't see myself relinquishing that. Having a high level of protein, can't see myself relinquishing that. Um, then really what I need to figure out, now then, then we sit there and we have the argument about, well, uh, gluconeogenesis? Yeah. And carbohydrate, glucose, in, um, like an introduction or utilization of that. Now it's like, well, there's nothing conclusive to say that carbohydrates are better than the gluconeogenesis. So then it's like, well, maybe I don't need to worry about that. I mean, there people, there's people that would definitely argue that carbs are definitely like, it, it would it would be like hands down. I know for a fact because I see it. Look, there's some evidence I've seen that it could be more favorable for certain types of exercise regime, for exercise outcomes, That's right? what I'm saying. So then, then, I'm, then I'm sort of thinking, well, maybe do I utilize carbs for the known... Right. hard known benefits that they yeah. offer then yeah maybe 
So you use them as a tool. Yes. Depending on your activity. Yes. Now then it comes back to fruit and veg. Like now the question is probably, I definitely, so back to Anthony Minicello through a lot of my listeners will know, the rugby league legend, but um, like seasonal fruit and veg. I think that's yes. I think that's completely makes sense. It's a no brainer. Mm-hmm. Not everyone can. I don't know. Does that that doesn't necessarily mean it's organic, but it needs to be seasonal because seasonal to me is more important because, well, it depends. Tell seasonal. me the benefits about seasonal. The the surface level benefit I have about seasonal is yeah. Tell me. Like with, I don't know if this how true this is. Woolies and coals, but like. F- that f- that food sits in the freezer. Like, there's no doubt. Like, hundred and ten percent. Do you know what I mean? So, and like seasonal, fr- like seasonal fruit grown at the time it's supposed to be grown and then eaten. There's obviously there's going to be some obvious benefits to that. Like, that's the way it should be. And I th- I think like if you want to combine this modern living with ancestral living, like I think what resonates with me is tuning in to what we've been doing for tens of thousands of years. Yes, I agree. I really like that. because that, that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Like we're asking all these questions. Like let's just like, go intuitive. Like what – all right, let's go back. We've only been – like we've done a lot of this research over the last like 100 years, okay? But what have we done in totality for the last tens of thousands of years? A lot of shit's changed. We got skyscrapers and buildings and computers. It's, it's changing us. But what, we can still control some of that. So intuitively, we would only have access to certain fruits, vegetables, even meats at certain times of the year. So summer, for example, well, what happens? We get the sweeter fruits, we get the berries, we get the the the, the sweet, and in the winter we get the like citrusy uh, fruits, the limes, the lemons, and so depending on your region. I'd love a breakdown of that as well. I'm, I'm, I might try and source that unless you have it. Already. I made one. I've yeah. got one. I'll please, give it to you. Please send that over because if I if I'm starting to say talk about seasonal fruit and veg, I ask this all the time. Sometimes I ask the people when I'm there, and they're like, "Oh, yeah, <laughs> fucking tell me." <laughs> I think Let's a see. good way to default it or just do it automatically is go to a market mm. because. If you go to an Australian, uh, like when you go to South Melbourne Market and you go go to the grocers that are just getting their stuff from Australia, mm. you'll generally see things that are seasonal. And then if it's not, you'll see that it's imported. Like, uh, I can't remember. But yeah, so I think that's a downside to seasonal, uh, to, to going to the common grocery stores is that what are they putting on vegetables and fruits to prolong the shelf life, mm. right? We know that when you buy, I know you don't eat this right now, spinach, when you buy bags of plants, right? Well, what's going on there? Well, yeah. why, why, what's in the bag? And it's not bad, but it's like they're, they're changing the ratio of air to nitrogen in meat to make it look more red and in plants to prolong the shelf life, okay? We know this exists in food manufacturing. Now, it's called, uh, and then, so what are we doing to then our plants and fruits when we import them and they have to sit on the shelf for, you know, months? 
So that 100%. to me makes sense to go seasonal in that mm, case. It does. I think it's pretty significant actually. Yeah. Now what about this? Yes. Now we're talking about the fact that we relate to and are intrigued by, and I used another word that basically you were um, readily adopting the ancestral, um, like, fundamentals into trying to bring them into now. Yeah. Now, a lot of the fruit and vegetables that are available now that we eat aren't ancestral. They're man-made. Ah, they're like they're like uh, genetically modified. They're created by man. They weren't around in whatever. So yeah, well, how do you, how does that sit with you? Because it did when it was explained to me, it didn't sit well. I was like, yeah, well, you know what? Do you have a dog? That. Huh? Do you have a dog? No. <laughs> have you ever owned one? Uh, yes. Okay. Well, this doesn't. You won't hit you as hard. But like, I think a similar question we can ask is like, how do we feel about uh, inbreeding an entire species of animals like dogs. So they went from wolves and now they're domesticated little scrunched up faces, which have all types of weird conditions, some of them. So that's it's an example of what we do as humans. We're nuts, man. Yes, but that's, yeah, okay. But, but my point is um, <laughs> the vegetables, like you, we don't have to eat those ones. I don't know the effects of genetically modifying inbreeding. But I'm saying if we're if we're plants. if we're talking about because we we've now moved into the fact that we're now discussing a holistic approach Ancestral, to yeah, yeah, yeah. nutrition. It's not yeah. we're not talking about a diet style. So what I'm saying is we're going seasonal. Now are we starting to look at well there there can you can you just see if you can look this up quickly if it comes up but Please, Jamie. Um, <laughs> You're the host, buddy. Come Jamie, on, son. Jamie, can you just look this up? <laughs> Emmanuel, can you please look this up for us? Gotcha. But, um, I think bro- I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it out there and say broccoli for starters. Man-made food. You want me man-made broccoli? Like this is how it came to life. Like this was not a food that was just around in oh, ancestrally. Cool. Oh, interesting. Okay. The Indian public media, it was bred out of wild cabbage plant. It was cultivated to have specific taste and flavor that was more palatable to people. Do you see what I'm saying? But how were they doing that is the question. But regardless, like if we're, if we're taking on the ancestral mindset, like now, do now, cause I'm not saying we're not doing this. We're not talking about toxins. We're not talking, we're talking about the fact that a holistic diet is, okay. isn't it an approach. So we've got seasonal. So that means in winter, in summer, you've got a select group of fruit and veg that you can eat, right? Now do we yeah. now do we categorize that again and go, okay, well, what of these foods are ancestral? What was what's what's been man made? I wonder if that conclusion can be come to as easily as seasonal. That's interesting. Because uh, there's some weight in that. Like even looking at like wild bananas, the first bananas may have cult- been cultivated 7,000 years ago uh, and they look, the modern banana looks quite different. It, it does, doesn't have all these seeds in it. Um, yes, that's right. The, old, the, old, the bananas used to be very different. Yes. So. It's an interesting topic. We might need it to. It is. Might need to not, run I'm, back. I'm not your guy for it. Like uh, this is an interesting one. So. 
if you want to just like stay ancestral, like, yeah, there's probably some questions to ask here, but if we're talking about foundational pillars of like living a healthy, good life, this is probably low on the list for me, but I'm just thinking about like, we've taken in, we've taken in all factors or principles. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering like if, if we're sort of, even coming from my perspective, coming from carnivore, coming from we we can go as far as having vegetables demonized using that terminology mm. um, because they're fully eliminated. I'm saying like finding middle ground based on the fact that you're not consuming loads and loads and loads of this stuff. So the toxins levels are not going to be like so detrimental. I'm just thinking, do we continue to just search for the best possible outcome? Now, we both acknowledge that seasonal is a good outcome. We both acknowledge that that should be something that's sought after because of the obvious benefits that we touched on. But maybe if you wanted to dive a little bit deeper, you go for fruit and vegetables that weren't man-made. I don't know. There might be something in it. Right, or weren't like genetically bred. Yes. Uh, I reckon we uh, should look into that. Yeah, I don't know the details of whether... Because, like, is there practical significance? Mm. Like, what if it, like, why do we do it? We want it to change the look, the flavor, the nutrient density. Like, what if the upsides outweigh the downsides? I still don't think anyone created those foods for nutritional benefit at the time. There's no way. I'm not saying that it couldn't be a byproduct. There could be benefits as a byproduct. You think the intention was... Definitely consumer-based. Let's make money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That's how a lot of things are driven in this society. (laughs) Sadly, yes. Uh, So that's a factor. But But okay, so we sit here now. Why don't you tell us about, um, because you've been on a bit of a journey lately. Like I've seen you go through a pretty significant, from an aesthetic standpoint, body transformation. I know that you you are a disciplined motherfucker. Like you, you... you are very good when it comes to that stuff, which I respect. It. But what what are you currently like? You must build out a diet plan based like you can't consume all this information and not build something that speaks to all of that. It's just it would yeah. be ridiculous. Yeah, no, I have a framework absolutely. And what is your current framework? So, Mike, I've actually listed it out. It's whole foods, yes. so predominantly whole foods. It's a diverse array. And I hope this doesn't trigger you or some people. It is a diverse array of plants and seasonal vegetables and fruits. You know, hunter-gather tribes would, would, would consume like 100 to 150 different varieties of uh, plants and fruits per year. The Western diet is like 15 to 30. So diversity for the microbiome and for general health and nutrient diversity is, is another one. Um, if depending on the, the state I'm in or, or what particular foods it is, ideally grass-fed, organic, or wild-caught, um, incorporating game meats, low mercury fish is important, like seafood, like the, the SMASH acronym, um, salmon, mackerel, anchovy, sardines, herring, like okay. low mercury, uh, smaller fish, rich in omegas, Organ meats. Right now, uh, I take a daily uh, beef liver powder with my shake. Food rotation 
is another factor to mitigating food sensitivities and, and bacterial uh, ratio imbalances in the gut. It's like, all right, let's rotate the plan of my foods seasonally or quarterly. And you know what? When you eat, just calm down, like mm. breathe. Like I used to eat in Yo, jacked 100%. up stress states. Yeah, 100%. And your digestion would get all fucked up. You'd be like eating so fast. People call me out. You're such a slow eater. I'm looking at the rest of the world like you guys are on speed, on crack right now. Mm. Like you having giant forkfuls. People never put their fork or spoon down. That's a bad sign. Put it down. Taste your food. No one smells their food anymore. I look a bit strange. Some people say when I get a meal at a restaurant or before I eat, I just sit there and I look at it and then I bring it to my nose and I smell it like a weirdo, right? Yes, can, Who would have thought, man? And I do it three oh, I can, times. I, can see it. I take three deep breaths and I try and get in a parasympathetic state. Mm, I get it though. Because if you, and I've talked about this on Strength Aside, if you eat in a sympathetic state, if you're coming straight from training or a stressed state, blood flow is going to be diverted away from your gut. Mm. Uh, blood flow to the to the gut when you when you're eating uh, needs to jack up like two times like two times two to three times compared to at regular when it when it's just not digesting anything. Okay, and if you're in a stressed state or just finished exercising in a huff and a puff and you're down that shake, there is this. Uh, what we call circulatory conflict of blood flow. So it's very important to me. I eat in a calm state to improve my digestion and appreciation and gratitude for what's in front of me. And then there's supplementation on, on, on top of that. There you go. Oh, and oysters, like seafood with oysters, like a dozen, dozen oysters a week. Mm. Absolutely. They're just loaded with vitamins and minerals. Though. Oh, dude, absolutely. Like, Organ meats, seafood, like I'm eating seafood about every day now, um, two, three times, two, two, one, two times a day. Uh, the oysters, the eggs, rich in choline um, and K vitamin K2, uh, biotin. Uh, like I'd make that a part of your carnivore if you can. I think it is for you. Anyway. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I want to touch on um, two more things before we end. We could, I could talk to you all day about this shit, but. Yes, we could. Two things to finally finish. Um, one, I wanted to talk to you about a test I just did, and two is dairy. So the first one, I just did this clinical labs test uh, where you get the foods tested against your blood. It's basically like an allergy test. Do you know the one? Uh, IgG? I think so. It's 200 foods, and they test it, and you get like – uh, you get like a, a, a reading and it's like uh, your reaction level. So it's like green, red, orange, and, you know, those those foods that are a high reaction to the ones w you're supposed to avoid. Blood, urine, or stool? Blood. What company? Clinical Labs. Cool. Go on. Um, so I did that, but then I've heard mixed reviews from people saying like people have done these regularly because uh, it's like a $550 test, but someone showed told me about it. I was like, yeah, I'll do that. Like I'm interested, you know, I'm intrigued by the education and the information, but I've had people tell me they've done it and they've got different things each time, which makes me think that it could be based off like foods you're eating regularly. Which You're was right. Kind of, yeah, which was kind of annoying because, like, I had some high markers for egg whites, for dairy. Uh, what other things? 
nothing too crazy, just a few other random bits. But I was like, I don't really feel like I got... I did actually go into it. And the one thing I said, I said, eggs is going to show up. I just feel like I had a weird... If I ever got a slightly weird feeling, I reckon it was after breakfast, you know? I don't know. It was just something about that. Okay. So uh, now I'm currently trialing. So now I'm trialing um, no dairy as well, uh, which is very different because I just went to from consuming like, you know, your cheeses and some milk here and there and um, also um, egg whites. Obviously I cut them out as well. So I just chuck a couple of yolks in. But um yeah, I just wanted to get your opinion on what have you heard anything about that test. But the stool one, I'm also interested. I, pro- I probably am pretty keen to do that. And then where you sit with dairy, really. Yeah, so the before we get to dairy, the, the test, the I, like an IgG food sensitivity test is a common one. You may have got something like that. Yeah, I think they're so. Generally, they're generally pretty inaccurate. Yeah. Uh, they get a lot of false positives. And the foods that you eat commonly, like you said, will show up because – they create immunoglobulins, uh, which are antibodies produced by white blood cells. And so you, that's going to show up because your body produces more of them when you when you eat that same food over and over. Mm. It's not obvious whether that's an actual problem. Yeah, right. So I would say base it off your signs and symptoms and biomarkers, blood tests, and stool rather than a food sensitivity test, which are generally quite inconsistent. Okay. Dairy. What about it, my friend? Where do you, do you drink it? Eat it? So when we say dairy, we got to talk about lactose. Okay. So a lot, it depends on the source of dairy, yes. which have different amounts of lactose. Uh, lacto, uh, so so give me some examples of high lactose. Milk. Milk, yeah. Full cream milk. Uh, full cream milk is is very common. Yeah. Um, that's probably some cheeses. It's really hit and miss with cheeses uh, because if you age the cheese, then the lactose goes down. Um, and some yogurts also have lactase, the enzyme in it already, but some full cream yogurts as well. Uh, so milk, yogurt, some cheeses are the most common. So any t- like... It depends on dairy is going to be dependent on your one is, is going to be dependent on your ability to digest lactose or not. About two thirds of the world don't have the enzyme or don't produce the enzyme lactase. Lactase breaks down lactose. Can you find so, out if you do have that? You'll know, my friend, you'll know. So I, so obviously I do have it. Uh, so if you get gastrointestinal symptoms nah. are very common as a result. Like you, how much milk do you drink? Well, no, not, well, not heaps, but like, I don't, I don't get reactions from it. No way. Okay. So usually they're like, they're very common in Asian populations. 90 plus percent of Asian populations are lactose intolerant. Um, but what's your background again? Dad's Hungarian. Mum's Kiwi. Hmm. See, I don't know about Hungary. Is, Hungary. is Hungary either like Eastern Scandinavian Euro- countries? Nah, it's Eastern European, like Romania and shit like that. Okay. You look, because some a lot of Scandinavian companies like Denmark, Norway, Sweden, I don't know how close that is to it. Um, I think kind of maybe close. They're the opposite. They have a lot of lactase persistence. So they have a readily ability to produce and digest lactose. You might be one of those people. So 
a lot of people can't digest lactose and get problems, uh, gastrointestinal problems. And this is, this is not a problem with the food. It's a problem with you. It's like a genetic, like inbuilt problem. Okay. So you cannot, you can't, you can, can you find this out? Determine this? I don't know. Yeah, Good right. question. Yeah, I'll look, you gotta look that one up. Yeah. Okay, cool. But generally it's pretty obvious. Uh, so that can cause a whole uh, cold bunch of problems. But other than that, now is the conversation depends where you want to go, like milk and dairy consumption on disease risk. Like I have a bunch of studies here uh, on the incidences and relation to prostate, breast, colon cancer, um, and general cancer risk. Like the meta-analysis suggests that low fat skim milk, whole milk, yogurt, lactose intake has no associated association with increased risk of ovarian cancer but you know some studies show you know other results i think it sounds mixed and if it's mixed that means it's inconclusive and we can't make a judgment call from it um though you know if your milk uh dairy consumption does seem to exacerbate gi issues and acne skin skin issues as well particularly in teenagers but then like, what about raw milk and goat's milk, mm. which is generally going to be a higher quality? Like the pasteurized milk that you get from the shelves is pasteurized to protect us. They say protect us mm. from all of the, you know, potential harmful bacteria that could be in there. Yes. But what happens is now it's devoid of any enzymes. It's cooked. It's, dev- huh? it's cooked. It's, it's cooked. It's been boiled. <laughs> to a very high temperature so what is it they- yeah 100 yeah, i was just googling um there is there is a couple of tests um a couple one that came up was the hydrogen breath test so you they'll enjoy oh get yes you to, there is that's drink, like SIBO. yeah they'll so get you, can- you to drink a liquid solution containing lactose and you'll believe into a blue breathe into a balloon-like instrument at yep. set intervals to, de- to determine how much hydrogen there is in your breath yeah. So that that's the same test that I did to detect if I had SIBO. They're just measuring different gases against different compounds. Okay. And then they've got uh, lactose tolerance tests like the hydrogen breath test. This test requires you to drink a liquid with lactose. After two hours, your doctor will take a blood sample to measure how much glucose is in your blood. If your glu- blood glucose level doesn't rise, this means that your body isn't digesting or absorbing lactose. The blood glucose level doesn't rise. Yes. Interesting. This means that your body isn't digesting or absorbing lactose. Yes, because lactose is a sugar. We have to remember that. And sugar is supposed to stimulate blood glucose. So if we don't get that response, that means it's probably being fermented and yes. just getting passed through the GI tract. Yes, that's what uh, it says. Very interesting. And then a stool acidity test as well, fermenting lactose in the intestines. Oh, we love a stool acidity test. Which can be t- creates lactic acid, which can be detected in the stool. So short dairy can be a problem for because of lactose, but not all dairy depends if you, you can pick carefully, like, like a cottage cheese or a, you know, there's different cheeses and yogurts that will have the lactase, lactase enzyme, pick them carefully, observe your signs and symptoms and the relevancy on disease and cancer, the jury's still out. There's mixed data, but it's probably more important. The context of your diet rather than an individual macronutrient or compound yeah i love drinking the raw milk in queensland how did you feel what does it taste like what did you feel it tastes unreal it's just it tastes just 
fresh and creamy. It's just so mm. nice. They have the um, the yogurt was really cool. They have um, they have the cream, the raw cream, which is like super calorie dense. I reckon Arnie used to smash it back in the day. I've had one day I had a tub and I was like, oh, I thought I was going to pass out. It was that. I reckon there's about it's only a small tub, like not too thick. I reckon it's about four thousand calories. Good lord! <laughs> like it's intense, but no, nah, I, I love it. I, th- I think it's I think it's great, but um, yeah, we can't get it here anymore because I think one a kid got sick and then they relate they attributed it back to that. So. Right. So uh, that can happen, but look, a kid got sick, but a uh, hundred thousands of other people drink it daily. That's it. Do you know how many? Do you know how many foodborne illnesses people get sick from? From like just general food, meat, plants, everything. Like, it's every day. Mm. Uh, so crazy. it's you know. I finished with one story for you. So, um, cholesterol. So yes, yes. So obviously, it was quite an interesting point um, that I was quite interested in, and again, a big pillar of the carnivore diet, which is they subscribe to the lipid theory, which we'll go into, I'm sure. Now, on my first blood test, I was in Queensland, and I was like, I want to get this done. So I said to the doc, "Hey, doc, I've been doing this carnivore diet, blah blah. I'm keen to get a blood test." So I did the full mm-hmm. blood test um, when they come in to do the corona ones. They took it and um, got it back and. Now he's a he's a GP basically, but um, I took him. He goes, "Mate, what's going on? I've never seen anything like this." Like, <laughs> you know, basically telling me that I'm going to die tomorrow. Oh, good like, lord! Because my cholesterol was just off its face. Yeah, and he just he sort of half rattled me for a bit. I was like, "Oh shit! Like, what am I doing? Like, he's telling me I'm I'm, I'm he's throwing out these numbers about how much more at risk I am of heart to de- disease and blah blah blah." I was just like, Fuck. so I went back to Dom and I was like, "Bro, the doctor's just had a panic attack and blah blah blah." And he goes, show me the scores. And he, he he must have used some sort of calculator to come up with a marker based on certain things to give me a score, which I'm imagining is more produced from that lipid theory realm. But anyway, I told him, he said, mate, your cholesterol is unbelievable. Um, now, I had high cholesterol, just to note. Uh, total High LDL, total HDL. cholesterol, which, mm-hmm. which your typical – like let's say GP like doctor sees high cholesterol and that's an alarm bell. Yeah. But as it's explained to me, that is not the alarm bell. The alarm bell is high triglycerides. Yes. And low, uh, is it LDL? It is, but it's a specific type of LDL. Okay. So, but that's, but from a basic version, that was what it explained to me. Um, so obviously I had super low triglycerides um, and I had uh, good markers for my HDL and LDL, and when explained to me, I was like, okay, that makes sense. It was also partnered with a conversation of how important cholesterol is and the integral role it plays in, as you said, hormone shuttling and production and a few other things. So I was like, okay, well, it all kind of makes sense. And then the fact that the lipid theory or that model is being spoken about and is actually being um, floated and prescribed prescribed and advocated by a lot of people in the field um you know the cardiovascular field so um yeah i thought it was i just thought it was very interesting and it's obviously a big topic that has some uh misinterpretations it does how high was it do you remember i'll tell you while while, while we're speaking i'll tell you okay well you pull that up like you're right like hormones like estrogen testosterone vitamin d cortisol cholesterol is a precursor to all those hormones Mm. okay 
It's a precursor to bile acids. It's going to help you break down and emulsify fats. The body makes much more of it compared to what you get from dietary sources. Okay. So there's a lot of genetic influences as well. You got it? Yes, I've got it. So my cholesterol um, was, it just says cholesterol. It was 9.4. Okay. My triglycerides were 0.8. Great. My HDL was 1.71. My LDL was 7.3. My total cholesterol slash HDL was 5.5. Yep. And my non-HDLC was 7.69. Yep. Okay. So he's, you know, he said my cholesterol is, um, is great. Well, to me, the, what the most important thing that we don't measure unless you get it tested is the particle size. People get tripping out by HDL good, LDL bad. No, it's not that simple. Like there's uh, underneath HDL and LDL, there are two other, uh, there's large buoyant and small fluffy like particle sizes. It depends how big those numbers are because there can be a there can be a quote unquote inflammatory bad disease associated HDL and the same is true for LDL, but they also have on the other side of it, it confers benefits. Like there's an LDL particle that also confers benefits, a HDL that confers benefits, and so they have the same kind of mirror for each. So it really depends on the particle size of the different LDL molecules and how high or low those numbers are. LDL high does not automatically mean bad. Unfortunately, we don't do those types of tests traditionally, and we can get into why cholesterol has been demonized historically um, as a result of... Because uh, he was saying here, he was saying, the only marker of heart disease is low LDL and high triglycerides. He was saying, you saw my post the other day about a heart attack. Guy had low cholesterol, very low LDL, and very high triglycerides. Doctors told him he was healthy and the lower cholesterol was what they wanted to see. And then he had a heart attack. Yeah, look, a case study, N of one, but but just mm. an example of where we could be misinformed. Mm. But th- look, if you think people demonize fat, they're going to flip their shit about cholesterol, mm. right? But Lo- it's, it's Low ca- cholesterol means danger, he's saying. You have no proteins to carry fat into cells and waste back to the liver. Totally. Protein it's, that carries it's, fat and nutrients. It's essential. See, I thought I thought high cholesterol was what clo- you know clogs your arteries. But he's saying cl- triglycerides are fatty tissues that rise in your blood from shit foods, inflammation, and lack of cholesterol lipoproteins to get rise of them. And then you get plaque formation. So when someone has a heart attack, their body tries to protect itself by raising the LDL, but it's too late. So doctors think it's the LDL that's the cause. Right, but they're looking at an acute marker. It sounds like instead of like mm. just an acute change instead of like what's been happening previously chronically. Mm. There's so, another test that um, Anthony Minicello told me about, some cholesterol test you can go get at the hospital and it's like really just, te- it, it just tells you how, and it must be something to do like looking at your arteries and, and like the pla and all that stuff. APOB? I don't know, but it would be the test. So if it's the test that you're thinking of, then probably. Yeah. But I'm keen to do that. Yes, Look, here's the thing. Measure it. Yeah. Like what gets measured gets managed. If you're going to do, if you're going to do types of diet regimes that we don't have a lot of, we don't have much like long evidence on, and we mm. don't understand, and we haven't tested it like in a clinical setting, like make sure you're measuring your biomarkers and your biochemistry, and you're monitoring your signs and symptoms carefully, because 
there's a consequences to everything in the body metabolically. Like there's no free lunch. So awesome. You know, Keep what's getting funny? Tested. you know, what's funny, you know, why he bring up that test is why? because he said, you know, the reason that he, he didn't, couldn't do an extreme carnivore diet was because he likes to, he likes to have more of a varied lifestyle. So he likes to have a drink. He likes to do this and he do that. He said, bro, when you're on an extreme carnivore diet, you're operating at such like peak levels of cholesterol that it really doesn't give like allow the flexibility to be doing all this stuff. That's actually w the first trigger that rattled me because my my life's I'm not I'm not this carnivore saint. I do whatever the fuck I want. So like that actually was like oh shit. That's that's what triggered me to say maybe I need now again back to his approach seasonal fruit and veg, the way I cook my food, yeah, the way I source my food, what I cook my food with. And um, then it's like having having the proper salt intake as well. Yes. So that's that's his that's his diet plan. I was like, mm, this is this is probably starting to sound, and and it offers a bit more flexibility and way of lifestyle. Hence why I was like, mm, you know, maybe I'm not trying to live my life like this, you know, like perfectly. So maybe I maybe I actually do need to implement some. stuff. What can you speak to about that point? I think what you're talking about is now psychology and like lifestyle and what standards that you want to live by. And I think that's really important that like, if your cholesterol's jacked through the roof, okay, that's due to this lifestyle and that's may not be a bad thing, but what if you want to be flexible and once a week, twice a week, I saw you with the Cadbury chocolate. Enjoy mm. man. Mm. Enjoy. But, Oh, that's different now. How could now an acute spike in 50 to 100 grams of, you know, uh, a bit of monosaccharide, sugar, and, and, and some dairy. Or 15 tequilas. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> yeah, you're going in. Like, all right, then that changes the conversation mm. because when we combine now potentially an unhealthy lifestyle risk factor with what, what your carnivore was fine. But what if you combine it now with that type of lifestyle? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And I don't like not knowing. Like mm. that's, but if it's more omnivorous, if it's more. Well, that's where I think I, that was, this is a great, this is a great point because I think it's quite clearly says to me, hey, I think you need a bit more balance because you're, you're, you're implementing balance in your lifestyle. So yeah. I think your nutrition plan needs to match that. So I've answered my own question. But that's that's good. You come to come to those realizations. Like mm. I don't think we need to stick to it forever. Anything forever. Mm. Like it's okay to change. Like mm. here's the here's a problem. Like about oh you've called yourself the the vegan MD, the carnivore MD. Like I like Paul. Like mm. I think he's very well researched and he's yeah. pretty reasonable. Um, but there's a problem now when you associate part of your identity, well-being, mm. and business. That's what I it's say. Livelihood. When I say oh, I eat carnivore, and then I, you know, I go and eat a bit of chocolate. Oh, aren't you a carnivore? It's, well, it's not a religion. Like it's just how I eat most of the time. Like, what do you right. mean? <laughs> if I want a chocolate, I'll eat a fucking chocolate. <laughs> and so now, now here's the problem. Like it becomes an ideology. Mm. And the problem is when you have these researchers and doctors. And they, because on the other side, there's a plant based podcast going on right now. It's shitting on us, yeah. right? <laughs> so I think a problem, I, I don't, I want to stay as unbiased as possible. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm, I'm the same. So 
Let's look at both sides, but let's also display the risk of people may have agendas when they've put their entire business. The, look, regardless of Paul's intentions or the plant-based person's intentions, the more their diets become prevalent, the more potential influence, power, and money they can make. Mm. That's net positive for them. Why wouldn't they want to keep spreading their message? If they see evidence on the contrary to what they're purporting, then that's a confliction. That's a confliction now of identity that goes, what are you going to do? Change your name. I'm now the uh, carnivore and plant-based MD. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's enough research now where I've changed my mind. No way. That's, you know, much cognitive dissonance and confliction there's going to be there that would undermine your entire authority. Mm -hmm. And so I have healthy skepticism towards people who have picked sides. I don't care what's more beneficial. If 50 years time, we have like 50 years of evidence and like, all right, guys, we were wrong about this. All right, got you. I'll change. Mm. But like, let's seek truth. Let's just take some emotion out of it. I'm not, I'm well, that's not my I'm, diet. Yeah, I'm, I'm always seeking truth. But unfortunately in this topic, it's not, it's not that, it's not really black and white. There's a lot of, Gray. So much gray. Like your jumper, man. There's a lot of gray. There's a lot of gray. But I feel like we've come to some really good conclusions. I hope so. I hope sometimes it can pose more questions, but we'll I think it will definitely two. pose more questions, but I think it's a good um good base chat. I let's leave it on the note of given what you're currently doing, given what I've just spoken about. I'll make some points and then I'll get you to summarize. I think that I think that we need to experiment with different uh, diets and regimes that speak to either A, issues we have, or B, performance-related goals. I feel like it's, it's definitely advantageous. Now, that could be an athlete or that could be someone that wants to lose weight. The elimination process involved with a diet like the carnivore diet has its also added advantages. Yeah. But again, there's going to be a level of discipline and commitment that goes with that, not only to achieve it and actually um, do it, but then to start to reintroduce and come to a significant conclusion about what was potentially causing you your issues. Totally. Furthermore from that, I feel like based on pretty much everyone I know wanting to live a balanced lifestyle, which is basically everyone... I think that we need to look at diet more holistically. Now, no doubt, I will tip the scales at a higher protein, a higher fat diet for the reasons we spoke about. But the benefits of me implementing seasonal fruit and vegetables that ideally are organically sourced, along with um, my grass-fed, um, what would be the word I'm looking for, ethically sourced right, meat yep. with the added introduction of the seafoods, especially the ones that we mentioned, um, staying hydrated, um, salt intake, which is important, which I'll get you to summarize on. I, I think that this is probably a direction that we need to look at um, and start speaking about more of. This conversation was obviously based on my experience on a certain diet style, but think I would acknowledge that that is something that I'm really interested in and implementing. And then lastly for myself is I do believe in becoming fat adapted as an energy source because of the benefits that I mentioned. 
and then I want to explore deeper, what's the best way for me to utilize carbs basically on a performance level? So that's, that's you know, a lot of good stuff that I take away from that. I think you're a great listener because you have summarized almost all of our points of view and the conversation very well. Like that's, that's it. Mm. Like, I don't really have any more to add unless you have questions, which we can keep going. Can you touch on the salt thing? Yeah. What type of salt do you take right now? Let's, let me go and ask you. I, I only have, um, it's like the Murray river salt. Awesome. So you get it from the market. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of that too. Uh, so. Cause salt's a funny one too. Salt's got some weird, uh, myths, taboos around it. Like don't have too much salt, blah, blah, blah. But then you, there's this, is it, is there not a new wave coming of like fucking salt up? Oh, I'm on that wave, my friend. Yeah, well, explain it. Good. I need to know. Okay. So <laughs> again, I did a post. I don't know. Did you see my post on sodium where I kind of just talked about this? No. No. All right, I need, cool. to, I need to be more attentive because you've covered a lot of things already before. <laughs> <laughs> no, like. dude, that's personally on strength of side. Now we'll go into it. Uh, so I think when people say salt equals bad, it's the same conversation ideology of like fat equals bad. No, um, actually many people probably need to increase their salt intake, but quality salt intake. Uh, let's talk about. Before you go on, do, do people attach salt with water retention and bloating? That's a, is that a thing? That's a thing, isn't it? People do that. And it's true. It will, it will pull water in. It okay. will, salt will bring fluid in to the tissue. Okay. That's why fighters and bodybuilding athletes will cut salt out for a period of time. Um, but we're talking about like, what we're talking about is probably not very useful for the average person. Like the reason you're fat and fluidy and look at puffy is probably not because your salt intake, like mm. probably, mm. right? Probably because of the dozen other shit lifestyle factors you have. Mm-hmm. But unless you're eating like 10, 20 grams of salt a day, you're probably not that. Uh, salt sodium is often associated with high blood pressure, hypertension, and high blood volume. True or not true? Depends. If people already have hypertension, it can accelerate it. Um, Let's talk about what salt does. So it helps regulate aldosterone, which is a hormone that stimulates the kidneys to reabsorb sodium and secrete potassium. They're both minerals. Higher sodium intake causes solutes like water and glucose to be reabsorbed, which then increases blood volume or it can increase blood volume, therefore increase blood pressure. So increasing aldosterone through higher sodium can do those things. But we need to ask, like, who is this applicable for? Is this a meaningful risk factor for healthy populations like you or me? And so if you don't have unhealthy lifestyle risk factors, smoking, overweight, obesity, alcohol consumption, then this sodium intake is likely not going to be a major practical implication for uh, affecting your health negatively. Okay. It can actually, it's, it's, it, it's going to help us in a lot of ways uh, unless you have certain comorbidities. Um, but let's talk about who it could be beneficial for. All right. How about the person who has a high sweat rate? 
I'm in the sauna twice a week. Mm. And you're going to tell me salt's bad for me? You need to stop, son, because guess, guess what? The, pre- the predominant mineral lost in sweat is salt. Bang. You got it, son. <laughs> 10 points, Yo. right? It's the predominant mineral lost through our sweat. And people with high sweat rate, people who exercise frequently, um, every day. Like I, I, like I need to strategically use certain salts to help replenish what I've lost. And hot, hot climates, heat stress in the summer. Uh, frequent urination, if you have it, can be as a result of low sodium intake. Mm. Um, or if you have like mineral corticoid, aldosterone issues, uh, if you're secreting a lot of sodium, um, you may need to intake a little more, or that could be a different issue. Uh, but most people don't intake enough. They lose a lot through their sweat. And here's the most like fundamental thing. Every muscular contraction in the body requires the influx and outflux of sodium and potassium, okay, by the ATP pays pump. So every muscle contraction is regulated in part by these minerals. You're deficient in them. Theoretically, you're going to uh, decrease your ability, your efficiency, effectiveness to contract muscle and stimulate electrical signals down from your brain to your muscles. So, you know, I've heard people like really well-respected health professionals like Chris Masterjohn, you know, recommend like six grams a day for highly active people and to increase mineral absorption, like six grams, like, you know what the, you know what the recommended uh, RDI is for salt. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, 1300, 1.3 grams, right? Which is much lower than what a lot of people are going to need. And so there's some functions, important notes about sodium, but then it's like, oh, what type of sodium? Because you got, you got your table salt, right? Iodized table salt, which is generally pretty low quality. Mm-hmm. Like what, what have you been intaking? I can't, would you say, oh, you said the Murray River. Yeah, Murray River salt. So that's going to be a salt that is going to be, what do we, what, what do we need to look out for? Heavy metals, microplastics, which is kind of a nuance, but like heavy metals, microplastics, and the, how mineral dense it is. A Himalayan, oh, sorry, a Murray River salt, a river salt uh, is generally, or Celtic sea salt is generally going to be richer, full of minerals compared to your typical pretty low quality table salt, which mm. is, which is uh, typically like, uh, what do they do to it? They've, they've processed it heavily. They've rinsed it. It's sodium chloride. So it's not just sodium, it's sodium with chloride. Um, and a lot of the trace minerals apparently are devoid or much more diminished in their processing and production of it compared to a Celtic or a Maya River, which is generally going to be higher in minerals. Mm. So... Sorry for the long answers, bro. No, these, co- these these topics. See, here's the thing. Like, <laughs> they're, they're fucking. We've complex, covered a lot of topics. Man. Like, people want to summarize this in two sentences. I can't. I don't <laughs> want to. It's Have you heard of that product called Real Salt or something? Nah. What's it? I'll, I'll send it to you. Some something. It's something. Does that it's, make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. It does make sense. It was good. Cool. It was good. St- it was... Stay on your Murray River, man. Yeah, I'll stay on the Murray. It's nice salt. <laughs> Especially, I get the you put the flakes on the steak. Oh, stop it! Nice. I got, I got nice. to uh, 
I gotta say, I, I would love to try some of your cooking, man. You're, yeah. uh, you're becoming a chef. Yeah, I don't know about that. I can cook for myself. I'm a bachelor, so yeah. I've got no one right. to cook for. <laughs> no, fair but I'm I'll going home up. to a, uh, I posted on my Instagram before, I'm going home to a nice kilo slab of brisket cooking the slow cooker. It's cooking right now? It is. So I'll come home after on a low, it was, it was on at two o'clock. So yeah, I'll probably eat it at like 7.30. Beautiful. Enjoy. There's a couple of things around. Uh, there's some good stuff. We'll let we'll we'll touch on it next time. The sleep, the uh, timing of your eating, all this stuff's good shit too. Yes, it's that's good big. shit. It's good That's shit. important. But uh, mate, what a crack our introduction. You're an absolute legend. Ooh. I know. Um, I know people are gonna love um what you've got to say and listening to. And I'm 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 pretty fucking pumped to um be able to jump on with you and talk uh talk about anything. So. Yeah, man. Thank like you, this is just man. we hit one topic. I know, like one <laughs> topic within one topic. No, it was awesome, right? bro. I'm stoked it's, that we can uh, spoke, stoked that we can connect and um, same. try and bring this to as many people as possible. I know people are going to be interested, so it's really cool because it's it, you know, like I said, I feel like in terms of different trends and all of that stuff, we know that's opportunistic to talk about because it creates engagement. But I eat this way. A lot of people hear and see about it, and I mean, we've sort of we've diversified the conversation onto what we think could be a more holistic approach. So I think there's a lot of factors covered and uh, I think it's going to add a lot of value to a lot of people. So um, it's good shit, yeah. man. I appreciate it. And uh, I don't want to pretend like I have all the answers. Like, mm. like the, re- the reality is like nah. some of the stuff that I'm, I, we may have been talking about maybe a little bit off in some areas, you know, mm. it's going to happen 100%. in our conversations. Yeah. We're like, definitely not claiming to be experts. <laughs> Like, yeah, I'm, I'm not a PhD or doctor. Like, even though years of experience will give you a really good knowledge base mm. and experience, there's there's always going to be flaws. And so uh, be patient. Like, we're just doing our best to come to the closest thing to the truth as possible. Yo, I love that. All right, my man. Thank you for your debut on I Am The Fire. I love it.